Hello, friends. Before we proceed to listen to the newest episode of the Uncut Gems podcast, be aware that we are discussing two exploitation films directed by uh, Rob Zombie, Halloween 1 and Halloween 2. And these films are extremely violent and contain disturbing imagery and disturbing content. And inadvertently, the conversations surrounding these films will contain uh, comments on violence and sexual violence contained within these films, which understandably some listeners may find upsetting. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Thanks. She scared herself so much she ran back and fell. Come home, Michael, and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 40, and my name is Jakob. I'm Nick. I'm Jack. Like Michael Myers rising from the dead, I'm Carson. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you heard it here, folks. Carson's back, and we are also joined in here today by a fellow clapperite and his first sort of outing on our, on our podcast. Uh, Max Vincent is with us today. So hi, hi Max, how are you? Doing well. I'm. I actually really liked Halloween Kills, and I also really liked Halloween Two. So the Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, cool. Awesome. Right. So um, last week we talked about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness and marveled at the uh, tr- this truly under- underrated masterpiece of brooding tone. So uh, tonight we are both staying with this sort of Carpenter's spirit and kind of not because the films we are talking about are everything but brooding and moody. So some might would actually say that they are the exact opposite of what Carpenter's seminal movie was all about. And by now you might have figured out that we will be marking this year's Halloween by talking about Rob Zombie's two Halloween movies. So let us begin with the 2007 Halloween. Jesus Christ, Ronnie, you know I have to fucking work tonight. Somebody around here has got to make some money. I'm all broken up here, bitch. I can't work. Yeah, and whose fault is that? Fuck you. Oh, my God, you're pathetic. You know that new waitress over at the bingo lounge? She can give me the freaky eye. Oh, the whore with the big tits hanging down to her knees? Maybe I'll choke the chicken, purge my snorkel all over them flappy-ass tits. Good, we'll have a good fucking time. I will. I hope she likes cripples. Bitch, I will crawl over there and I will skull-fuck the shit out of you. Oh, I'll get the crutches for you. Written and directed by Rob Zombie, the 2007 Halloween functions both as a remake of this 1978 original and an extended origin story looking behind Michael Myers' mask. In it, we sort of find Michael as a deeply, let's just say, troubled, withdrawn child with violent tendencies and watch as he murders his om- almost entire family, sparing only his little baby sister and his mother, Sherry, who played by Sherry Moon Zombie, who happened not to be at home at the time. We then hang on to Michael as he is institutionalized, taunted and tormented in the mental asylum for, for, for years, um, among others by um, Dr. Loomis, played by Michael McDowell, and um, until he breaks out and seeks to come home to wreak havoc once more. Now... Um, following the release 
of Halloween Resurrection, there were many potential ideas as to where to take the franchise further, and some of them involved crossing over with the uh, sl other slasher fran franchises, particularly Hellraiser, I think. At some point, Clive Barker and John Carpenter were more or less formally attached to the production, but after Freddy vs. Jason was poorly received, and I think this is an understatement, the idea was dropped. And in 2006, Rob Zombie was announced as the caretaker of the franchise as he would write and direct a reboot with quite a bit of authorial control. So allegedly there was a feud between him and Carpenter and, and we might get to it when we talk about the movie. But he essentially boiled down to Carpenter telling Zombie to make, make the movie his own, which will be a topic as well. Anyway, um, Halloween was released at the tail end of the summer of 2007. Why it wasn't released on Halloween is beyond me. And despite relentless pummeling from the critical community, 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, <clears throat> and the fact that similar to Zombie's previous efforts, uh, the House of, two, of, one, um, of the, uh, 1000 Corpses and um, Devil's Rejects, it was insanely violent. It was a commercial success nonetheless. So it, in fact, it was successful enough that Malik Akkad, who was, you know, and other sort of uh, franchise stakeholders, they allowed Zombie to come back with a sequel, but more on that later. For now, let me ask you this. Where are you on zombies reinvention of the halloween franchise are you with the critics who hated it or with the fans who seemed more than okay with it so what is your take on 2007 halloween as uh, sort of tradition dictates let's just start with our esteemed guests so max how about you lead the way and tell us what you think about 2007 rob zombies halloween i don't like it very much um for i think two reasons um first and foremost i really hate the fact that they try to humanize and make the audience sort of sympathize with Michael Myers. That's probably the biggest cardinal mistake of the, of the first movie. Uh, whereas in the other, every other Halloween movie, uh, essentially Michael Myers is just a lifeless shape. There's no, ex there's no legitimate explanation for his penchant for violence. He's just purely and simply evil as Dr. Loomis at one point uh, puts it, but no, we have to sit through like 45 minutes of pure backstory. That's sort of, I don't know, makes us sympathize with a, with a psychopath, I guess. And then the second movie is it's uh, the, the second part, sorry, is just unjustifiably violent. It's way too violent and it feels a tad exploitative, which is weird because uh, the second movie is awesome, but I guess more on that later. Cool. Who's going next? Who wants to go next? I can go because I don't like the first one. I actually think it's quite like a disgusting film. Um, overall, I think Halloween is a very weird franchise with how it treats Michael Myers. The first one works in the first in the 2018 one, let's say, works really well when they display it as a random act of violence. I don't like the fact that they're siblings in Halloween, too. I think a lot of the time when they try to kind of justify and understand Michael Myers, and we've talked about it before on various podcasts, I think that's the wrong way to go with this series. I like number five the best because it ultimately gives Michael Myers a conviction, gives him a character. So many times he's the shape and that just has no character and it's just this random killing machine. And that ends up as a character feeling really boring. I don't really know if there's that many like like uh, horror movie bad guys that I find as boring as Michael Myers. But inherently, I don't hate the idea of trying to humanize him. I like it in Halloween 5. I don't mind the idea here. I just think this film, and I understand it's Rob Zombie style. I think that's one of the weakest excuses you can use. It just is a gross film. There is so much unneeded rape. There's so much unneeded just grossness to the murders, to the violence. And it's just illogical. I mean, the entire Michael Myers breaking out scene where you have two guards enter his room and rape a woman on his bed. I just think it's 
morally disgusting. I think it's unneeded. I think it's badly made. It's illogical. It doesn't add anything. I think Rob Zombie clearly is trying to be exploitive here with how he uses violence, with how he uses sexual violence. And it just rubbed me completely the wrong way. We will get to Halloween too. I don't want to act like this is my opinions on the entire, you know, sex. I think Halloween two is really great. But as far as Halloween one here, this version, it doesn't do a lot for me. It is one of those films. I just, it's unpleasant to watch in the worst of ways. Plus it's just boring. I mean, there's so much time, you know, he's going to turn into Michael Myers or into, you know, the shape. And there's so much time you spend with him as a kid, but ultimately it doesn't really mean a lot. You don't really get to see his like real transition or what kind of fully forces him. You get obviously his mother and that kind of stuff, but it just feels like a waste of time. It feels like you're waiting to get to that moment then you get this really disgusting transition to that moment. And then in that moment itself, the acting is fucking atrocious. Um, I should not be rooting for Michael Myers to kill Laurie Strode because Laurie Strode is so annoying, but here we are watching this film. So it's just, what is this film then? It's a bad setup. It's a disgusting middle part. And then it's just bad. You know, it's not, it's not a lot. Um. I quite like Rob Zombie. I think I think he, for for what he is, I think he, he makes his own interpretation of horror in, in that sly and the gritty way. I think I don't think he's ever made a, aside from a film we'll talk about a little bit later. I don't think he's ever made a terrifically well produced or even effective film in its own right. But he's always made decent three star films for me. So it's always like if you're ever going to go for a, a sleepover when you're younger, you're going to show people just grimy horror films. I'd always show a Rob Zombie film, like House of a Thousand Corpses, 31, stuff like that, just grim, uh, pure, just horror-driven pieces of, of work that don't really have much lifespan after the fact that you've seen it. But the two Halloween films are really interesting because I, I saw them both a few years ago, back to back. It's the worst thing you could ever do because it shows the issues that these films have. And back then, I think I preferred the first one and didn't like the second one. I watched this. I watched them both um, two two days apart this time to try to give some gravity. And I, I hate to say this, but I, I I agree with Max and Carson. The the first Halloween remake, the, the two thousand seven version of it, is horrid. It's it, it just it just that the, there's just so much wrong with it in the fact that like it's just a walking contradiction. Where I think it's, it's given to a director who's quite clearly an ex well likes to look at exploitation horror but it just has nothing to say. He could have something really inter- interesting to say about modern um, uh, children in, in, in school and, and, and it could be like a, a social allegory for like school shoes and stuff like that. It has so much like weight that it could, it could propose to itself, but he just, for some strange reason, he, di- he, he decides to humanize a villain, which is not an issue. Like we, it, can, it can be done, but the problem is it goes even further than the Don't Breathe Through fiasco where, it just contradicts itself. Like you can humanize a character, but ultimately, if we're going to spend so much time with him, we need to we need payoff. And he tries to do that. The fact that he tries to make like not 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 romanticize in a way, but this brother and sister relationship, which, like Carson said, I don't like that either. I think that that's a really poor decision on Carpenter's part back in the uh, Rick Rosenthal film um, in eighty one. I, I, I have no idea why he would want to carry that on. Um, but the issue when we spend so much time with him as, as a kid, it just alienates the audience tenfold. And the fact that he wants to humanise him, and at the end he, he does because he ultimately kills him off, um, 
he makes a six foot seven or six foot nine giant out of him. And there's like this oxymoronic relationship where he's meant to be like a, a, a child minded person. But he but he's like this huge monster of a physicality and he's just a wrecking ball. And it's not even that, but there's just so many decisions here where it's just lacking, it's like lack, lack, lackluster. There's just, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm probably not explaining my thoughts particularly well, but for a Halloween remake, pre, like a prequel remake that he tried to envision, it's just flat, it's hollow, it's flat, it's just so poorly crafted in set piece and editing. I, 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 I said in my notes why he decided to shoot, this is getting a bit nerdy, but why he decided to shoot this in 239.1 is the biggest fucking disaster going. He can't block, he can't sing um, for it, he can't um, frame, he can't do the composition. Each time it's like this. So there's a head missing in every single shot or it's like this. It's, it's so poorly made. Why he would decide to, to, to sort of like put, put his hands behind his back and with the Weinsteins and the, the Card family estate to me is frightening. Um, but watching it again, it's just it's just devoid of any interest. It's boring, quite frankly. It's too long, too long. And just just for the clarity, I watched both directors' cuts, and it didn't solve a fucking thing. It really didn't. It's just so poorly crafted. I, I, honestly, for two, I think it's two hours, hundred twenty-one minutes, and I don't think there's one part of this film where I thought, oh wow, I'm enjoying myself here. On just, I mean, even the twenty eighteen one, you you're enjoying the craftsmanship, or you're enjoying this seeing a character here, aside from one performance I'll, I'll speak later, I was, I was generally bored. And it's very rare that I'm bored throughout a film. So, I mean, what having on a rewatch was almost like a, a terror in itself, to be honest. This is our quick history. Everyone knows I love the original Halloween. Uh, not the biggest fan of some of the sequels that they made, but, you know, whatever. Um, and I don't think I've ever talked about Rob Zombie on the podcast. But I generally, I kind of agree with what Jack said. Like, I enjoy him. I'm not necessarily a fan of his, where I'm like, oh man, I have to watch all of his movies. It's like, you know, they're, they're enjoyable, they're grimy, they're dirty, they're nasty. Um, if you're in that sort of mood, it works. I think Lords of Salem is one of the most underrated horror films from the past decade, but that's another conversation for another day. But those Halloween movies, I watched them, The his two films, I watched them back to back right before going to see the 2018 one because they were some of the last ones I had to check out. Um, and surprisingly enough, Halloween 2007, I like it. Um, it is heavily flawed it, with so many problems. Pretty much almost everything that all three of you have said so far, I kind of agree with. Um, but... Uh, I think the, the main problem with making a Halloween remake is what are you going to do with it? And we've seen it with like Friday the 13th. We've seen it with Texas Chainsaw. We've seen it with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. The remakes are doing the exact same shit that happened in the first film. And it's, 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 it's not good. I mean, you can try making it good, but it's still a, a copycat of something that's already kind of great in its own right for most cases, but whatever especially remaking something as iconic as the first Halloween. And I think the only, almost the only natural way that you can take the story is to actually switch it up. Because if John Carpenter is looking at Michael Myers as the shape, this unspeakable evil, um, just pure violent energy that's just set out to kill people with no rhyme or reason, what you do is you make him human. I think it's the only way to kind of shake the story up a little bit. 
Um, and I do genuinely think that despite some, some horrible musical choices <laughs> in the first part, I think the prequel portion works um, because it's not necessarily explaining Michael Myers' childhood as being the reason why he is like that, because there's already something lingering there. But, you know, it, it's all about affection being absent. There's really no love in his family outside from his little sister and his mother. Um, he's a troubled kid. And it's the past is kind of giving you a bit of, you know, questioning nature versus nurture, that whole discussion. But again, I like that. I like the, I like how Dr. Loomis in this one is a massive shit bag. It only gets worse in the sequel, but I love that they actually embrace that because in the, in the original ones, you know, he's, he's a questionable psychiatrist. It's not, it's not the best one. He's like screaming at children and stuff. Um, but in this one, they do portray him as, as a garbage person. I think Malcolm McDowell is a lot of fun. The main problem for me with the remake is when it becomes the remake and Carson hit it right in the head because I, I, I don't, you know, it's a different interpretation of Laurie Strode. Sure, <laughs> she's fucking annoying. She has the same exact dialogue as the white trash family from the beginning. There's no difference between the two. And there's no actual, like, oh, it actually makes sense that there's similarities. Like, no, no, no. She's just being nasty. All of her friends are nasty. It's horrible dialogue. Performances are very questionable in there. And I think that's what brings the movie down for me. Because everything that comes before is intriguing. I like the focus on Michael Myers. Um, I like the Conan the Barbarian thing where he just becomes a massive buff <laughs> man from this very, like, chubby kid. I don't know how that happened in, in the asylum, but whatever. And from then on, it's it's mean. Um, I'm not that much bothered by some of the meanness. I have to agree with Carson. The the escape scene from the director's cut is rough. Um, the theatrical one makes no sense, but at least it doesn't involve rape of any sorts. And and it goes on for too long, because even though it, I I do like uh, the presence of Michael Myers in this one, like T Tyler Maine is a beast. He's just breaking floors, breaking doors. He's unstoppable. It's scary. But then just the climax keeps going and the story reaches a point where it ends and then it just goes on for another 15 minutes. And that's unneeded. Okay, yeah, those are just like general thoughts right now about this movie. So, Jakub, it's <laughs> um, <laughs> all yours now. <sighs> I think we're all in agreement here because I don't like this film. I, I, I don't think I ever liked it. However, I will say this. I saw this in the cinema when this came out in 2007. And then I came into this as someone who already liked the, the Halloween film. I mean, li liked it quite a lot. And then now I love it. You know, this is one of my favorite films. But it, it kind of has to be understood. I think we need to, we need to kind of just put this in perspective as well. How, like, because you can watch this film and you honestly ask yourself a question: How this film got made in the first place? Why, why, why is this like that, right? And then you have to just remember that this this came after Halloween Resurrection, which was a pile of dog shit. To, and then you know, when this is me being polite, calling it a pile of dog shit, right? So this is a franchise that's already tired. It's already tattered. It's all. It's already on its on its last legs. Like these people have no idea how to put it, put it. You know, put another installment together because they have rights to it. And then if they don't make a movie, they they lapse. They they will lapse, and then they will come go back to Carpenter. I think. So like, honestly, they're just desperate for novelty. And then oh, the whole genre of horror was was going through a, a bit of a 
through, through a bit of a shake-up with all the torture point and everything. So Rob Zombie kind of just like naturally just came in as this sort of new kid on the block who's just part of this wave of reinventing horror, right? And um, I could honestly understand that conceptually that this is something that could interest viewers. And I, I think it did because people liked it. And I think when I, when I watched it, it was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. They're trying to humanize this guy. Whatever. And, and, and the main allure of the film was that it was insanely violent. But if you look at it, I think um, I think you guys, you know, all all of you have touched on this, right? And there's there's just this idea of well, they all they're all nasty. This is just this energy of this film that I I always kind of saw this Rob Zombie's a big. I mean, I like the I, I don't like his films that much, but I like the idea that he makes films. I don't know if this makes sense because he's just a genuine fan of like 70s horror, who's given money to make movies. Yeah. Right. So he's just he makes fan films for I care. Right. <clears throat> on, on a budget. Right. Um, and he really loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like he really adores it. Like, and, and you can tell like the, the, the breakfast scene and the, and, the, and, and the Halloween is basically like the dinner scene in, 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 in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Only just he doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when, how like when, when where the limit of good taste is and he always just like well, he will just like over egg the pudding and then, then i don't know there'll be people just talking about it's like why don't you sit on my pole i'll skull fuck the shit out of you and just like well, why this this is a family <laughs> it's it's just weird and it's just uh, obnoxious right and but then you say oh yeah laurie straw just speaks in in, in, a, in a very sort of weird way they all of the characters in, in here they don't behave like they like they like her her adopted parents they swear like 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 you know like miners on on their way home from 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 a night shift in the, in the coal mines like it's just ridiculous like they're all they all speak essentially with rob zombie's voice and and some of them characters you can actually even pinpoint the characters who are kind of more more or less main characters they almost look like rob zombie if you know what rob zombie looks like you can see that Rory Strott, laurie Strott looks like she has greasy hair all she needs is a goatee like, to look like rob zombie like honestly but i can conceptually agree with the idea of this would be new to say oh i want to see how michael became what he is because that's the sort of bit that's always omitted in the sort of mythos of what he is but it makes no sense because you're you're essentially asking the audience to, uh, you know, sympathize with a serial killer, or you know, it's it's just it's just weird. And then if you add on this onto this the layer of just obnox like still stylistic obnoxiousness that this film is just permeated with, it just becomes um, taxing. It's it's tiring watching this film. is tiring. And then and, and like I'm watching this especially after it's turns into the shot for shot remake almost of the original i'm just thinking like why am i watching this i could just, just as well watch the watch the original and i'll be just like it will be just 20 minutes longer from where i am because it's just an hour in your you have an hour of the film left and this is just the remake of the original halloween so <laughs> it's it's a mess it's a mess and it, it's it's obnoxious and it's 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 gross and i think that's the word i want to use for this it's gross and it's almost <sighs> it feels like <clears throat> it's it's made in, in, in a very specific way, uh, as in there's, because you know what Rob Zombie's style is, and then it, you, you can see it there, but it's almost made in a way that it, it feels like someone's whispering in his ear, as though, oh, this is what you need to check off, this is what you need to, like, there's bits of fan service that you need to uh, you know, pay attention to, like, they're saying, oh, he's a mindless shape behind the mask, oh yeah, well, they said the word shape, so the fans would go like, fucking ah, shape, right? It's, it's just ridiculous. So it makes no sense. 
Um, so here's so these are my open, opening question, uh, impressions as in as in like I don't like the film. So here's a question to follow up: is, Was this a good idea to hire Rob Zombie for this, or um, is there another problem with this? Like, what, so like, I think this sort of review of this this film will be us being sort of the crime scene investigators trying to put together what the fuck happened. Um, so what's the problem with the film, apart from just, you know, the, the sort of obnoxiousness and grossness, which is, I think, an acquired taste, because if you don't like Rob Zombie's films, then they're all like that, right? <laughs> so, um, so here's a question. Is this, is this Rob Zombie's fault? Is this, where's the, where's the producers on this? Because I think in terms of how Rob Zombie makes films as well, because he wrote and directed it, and on top of that, um, from the behind the scenes features, because he's a, he's a genuinely nice guy, which is weird. Especially when you see, see what what films you make, but you, like you, you hear him speak, you see him like in like on a Joe Rogan podcast or whatever. He he's just a genuinely just a, a good human being, right? He just likes creepy shit, <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> you, you see him, and then you realize that he makes stuff as he goes along. So there is a script that he writes, but then he will just um, improvise on the on on the spot, and he will just figure out. Oh, let's do it that way, and then he he will just shoot way more stuff than he needs, and then and then he will just he has characters that he just completely removes. Like he had Adrian Barbeau in the film, and he cut cut it out completely from the director's Shame. cut as well. Like in the director's cut, she's not even in there; she's in, in deleted scenes. But um, so yeah, what what's the story here? What what do you guys think about how this could... film got made and and why it, why it's a failure? I can I can be really brief here. I, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. This, this is a film where it's it's just a wrong recipe entirely. This is they have hired a director who cannot work within the studio system on a franchise that has to be mandated on a studio system value, which is the the the, uh, the producer. I, 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 is it Mohammed Akkad? It's uh, um, Malik Malik, Malik Akkad. Malik Akkad. He has rules for the franchise that everyone has to adhere to. So you cannot kill Michael. He always has to return. There's certain things you can do. There's certain things you can't do. And I think that's all well and good. But the problem is, is that when you have someone who's a journeyman, you'll have no issue. But when you have someone who's starting to sort of push the boundaries of what they can do within within a system and, and how they, they operate, it's, it's going to be a fucking disaster. And the fact that... Because again, like you said about the the Joe Rogan interview, he said on a, he, he got the gig on a thousand corpses because Universal asked him what 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 did he want to do, and he pitched him a movie off off his ass. Oh, um, did you do you know how he got the uh, the gig off of yeah, Universal? He, yeah, he, he went there to a, to do a a, um, a maze for them. A yes, yeah, yeah, he did, he did, and really loved it. They gave him like five million dollars to make the film. Yeah, I know my shit, my friend, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, they were just, he went there. And they, for the they, benefit they, of the listener. Yeah, but apparently they, they gave him loads of money, made him do made him shoot on the back lot Universal. Then they got cold feet when they saw it. Everyone, you can, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Then he made The Devil's Rejects in 2005, which was, I think, was a no, massive that's not bomb. that's not the end of the story. Universal dropped the film. It oh, went yeah, to and Lions the Lionsgate picked it up, yeah. Yeah, because they said, oh, we're, not, we're not releasing an NC-17 film because this is clearly an NC-17 film. And then well, that's Lions... where it comes into test audiences as well. Uh, and then he he shot additional footage to it on, like, on video, so you can see there's like there's weird sort of there's there's stuff shot on film and there's stuff shot on video in the mm -hmm. film that we just picked up on his own like an indie guerrilla style sort of. Well, they right? gave him they gave him more money in the reshoots than he did in the initial budget. If that's mm -hmm. I mean that's universal. Um, you know they send people. <coughs> 
who are just you know going to release Christopher Nolan's new film. Um, anyway, going back to the point, that there's a director still trying to form his craft, and the the Devil's Rejects. I remember the poster when I went to high school with the, with the with the the hand on the on the on the on the wood with the blood and the nails. Really good iconography, and I know it made quite a lot of money, but it's two films. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a director who has no formal experience aside from doing music videos, which is not an issue because people can, people can be the second coming, but working in a studio mandated system like on the Halloween franchise at Universal is going to be a really, really tough gig. And this film is a perfect embellishment of when things go really, really wrong because he's trying to push. And every time he pushes, it gets tighter and tighter on him. So when he pushes at the beginning with the prologue, you can't you can't fall through with it because Universal, a card, etc. Excuse me, won't let him. So he has to squeeze it down, and then he gets to Michael, squeeze it down. And when you start thinking like it's every single aspect of this film where it gives you an idea is that he tries to push it, and then he cannot execute it because there's either no funds, there's no screenplay. He has both Weinstein's on his ass. Um, there's no way he can go with it. So. The film you ultimately get is you get a director who is trapped within a studio system and not not to jump the gun, but that's where the sequel comes in because it's the antithesis of what this is. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. No, 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 I will go. I'm not going to go let's there. Let's keep but, it in our pants for yeah, now. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> and that this, this is where the film is in a nutshell. It's that it's a, it's a director who has to conform and watching it, knowing that it's it's actually watching something drown in real in, in live action. It's actually quite haunting. Like we're all saying it's quite difficult to watch. But when you think about it, you are literally watching someone suffocate, drown on screen. So when you see it like that and you understand him as a director and how he likes to do his own thing, this and that, which is not an issue. I mean, sometimes it's good to have a good producer, don't get me wrong. Um, but when you sort of see that it's ultra violent, I think that's a contextual thing. And I think that's a conscious thing. And just thinking, do you know what? If I can't do what I want to do, then fuck it. I'll just do, I'll, I'll, I'll do the most excessive thing I can do. And ironically, that being a push that he thought would, would, would get him shoved has actually sort of weirdly saved him. And I think that's where fans like it, that it's ultra-violent, but it's not Halloween. And it's got this really weird issue where, there's a, there's, it's just like, again, it's, so, it's a massive contradiction. The director is a contradiction. The producer is a contradiction. The story is a contradiction. And ultimately, what it blossomed into is that very word. And for the audience, it's, it's such a horrible watch. It really is. But again, like you said, I like Rob Zombie. He's good when he does his own thing. And there's nothing wrong with, with trying to push the boundaries with the maturity as a director. He's a horror director. He wants to make other things. I know he's wanted to make a Marx Brothers um, late biopic, which sounds incredible. And then he wants to do something about the, uh, this hockey team on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's going to do the Munsters next. I like that. I like the director pushing yeah. his, uh, pushing the boat. This is not the film. Two films into your after your sophomore effort, which got rather good reviews, to try and see if you can do that on this property. I think he says in the podcast himself, he's very wonderfully naive. When he goes into something, he falls into it. This is something you do not want to fall into, and it's good to say that in hindsight. I'm wrong, but it's like being mandated every single split second of your life. <laughs> well, he didn't know what he was walking into, right? There he is no thing. idea. That's fair enough, but <laughs> you don't get that far in life being wonderfully naive. Granted, people fall upwards in Hollywood, mm -hmm. but he would have known that, that 
there are certain people, there are certain people who have got their hands in this franchise that have pre-mandated the beats to it. And they have done decades before this was ever going to come out. So half the, a quarter of the blame must lie on him being naive. But to be honest, where I come down to it, I think 50% of it, or well, 25% of it's a Halloween franchise. Another 25 is 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 him. Another 25 on that. Yeah, it's a card. And then the other 25 <laughs> that is, is, all, is, is the audience. Yeah, and well, and probably Weinstein as well. Both Weinsteins would be like, this is never going to sell. What the fuck? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... It, yeah, I mean, because the they were they bankrolled the film as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Miramax mm. as well is that they, they wouldn't go ahead with a third film and, and then prioritize Screen Four as well, which is really interesting because it it did rather well. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that's a film that, ironically enough, is a, is about you know <laughs> attacking convention, where this this film is as conventional to a T. But see, um, there's a, there's an interesting wrinkle that you've just mentioned. Like when like you don't stumble into things like this to be wonderfully naive. But then again, he kind of did. Like imagine him, he just he he's a musician. He I don't know. He had a hand in directing like music videos of his own band, mind you, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I know. That. Um, um, but then he he gets a gig like designing a haunted house for Universal, which just falls into his lap, right? It's like, oh, yeah, why don't you do this? And he and he just does it, and then just all of a sudden, like we wake up one day. You pick up a phone and then you t- someone tells you that guys in Universal want to give you like five million dollars to make a film. Do you want to take take them up on that? And he was like, "Fuck yeah!" So he and he ended up almost well releasing two essentially homemade films twice, right? So he he so he, he it's not like he was trying to gear up to actually make a studio picture because he was essentially just given money to make whatever the the hell he wanted to do. So he had no idea what it feels. It would be essentially like to give. So he he was basically given money to do whatever the hell he wants, um, to exercise his to hone his own style without sort of any sort of boundaries, and then all of a sudden he he's just put in the sort of a franchise situation. It would be essentially like given like giving Wes Anderson a Marvel film. And then cool. and and then seeing how he suffocates in there because he's like, I want to do the films my way. I want these things done this way and not the other way. And then all of a sudden, there is this fucking guy telling me what to do. Like, who the hell do you think you are? Like, you know, you hired Wes Anderson, not you know, or or this, in this case, like Rob Zombie. So you you should expect a Rob Zombie film, right? And then all of a sudden, no, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. This has to happen. This cannot happen. So I suppose this is also a part of it, right? I'm sorry, I feel but like, like no shit. Like uh, he has to be the stupidest man alive. If he's, he, he's gonna, but no, it's stupid. Not naive. You can look at this franchise <clears throat> that you're making this movie part of, and it's happened four, like three times in this franchise alone. Like, sorry, people outside. One second. <laughs> okay. You can see this in the same franchise you're making this film part of. It's happened three to you know two or three times in this franchise alone. If you think that you're going to go and make a Halloween movie and not face studio pushback or not face changes, like it's not just oh I'm naive, oh I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You are stupid. You know, like I I have very little pity for him that he thought he was going to make this film and then it had to be changed. Also, I just don't think he's that good of a director. But I guess side point, I just. No, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I must admit, I think that the, there's a, there's a moral to this story, um, con, uh, contextually within the filmmaking. Where if you're an artist or, or you're you're someone who who has who has got opinions and that is who you are, do not sacrifice them for 
career or success because he's on record of saying that he likes the first Halloween. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece in horror. He also says he doesn't like remakes and reboots. So when he's in that room and they say to him, and on, he's, he's trying to pitch an original project, and Bob Weinstein says, why don't you do Halloween? And he sits there to go against, I mean, it must have been a difficult decision, don't get me wrong, but to go against all moral uniqueness that he that man has to say yes um, you have to assault and we have to lie in the bed that you make and i think he made a very poor career decision it must have been very difficult not to not to have turned down i must admit because that is that is a there's very few people that are allowed to do that to the franchise uh, to be fair to david gordon green he's one of two and the other one is john carpenter who was allowed to do what the fuck they wanted with it and i think if someone pitches you it and says you know you can do what you want and and he says, right, this is my chance. I can do I can do Halloween. And he gets on set and he gets a screenplay. And you've been fighting for, for set pieces. And they said to you, all we're going to allow is that we're allowing you to do the, the young Michael story. And he must have sat there and thought, no, no, I didn't sign up for this. And then reading between the lines here with, with the making of and what he said after the fact as well, which is, again, a contradiction on most parts. But he says, you know, no, 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 I signed on to do this. It's like, no, no, we've had a look at the script. We've had a look at the budget. We're going to cut some days off. We're going to allow you to do the prequel, but we want it to be like this. That man's heart must have just sank in his fucking chest. So I can understand. I can understand partly that he maybe signed up for something, but really, in the long run, I think knowing what the wine scenes were like, I, I think I think that that gets around. I think everybody knows. Not not the, the, the sexual predator stuff. I mean, the fact that they, 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 they cut refinance. I mean, I don't know if anyone knows this story, but Billy Bob Thornton once made a film, and I can't remember who the lead actor is in it. But it's but the it's it's meant to be. It was a film that that he shot. It's a it's a Hunter S. Thompson thing. I'm sure it is. And um, oh, fuck, I don't I don't know what it is. It might be. I think it's based on a book. It could be that or Cormac McCarthy. I don't know. And they bought the film, and it was meant to be like a masterpiece. Like I cannot remember the film. People have to have to search for themselves. Is it all the um, pretty horses? Yes, it's meant to be a stunning feature. Like it's meant to to be at the time released something incredibly special and they re-edited it and recut it and they've never seen it since. And he's on record. I think one of the actors said, I've seen it in the, in the work print. And I mean, said, is this like the uh, disappearance of Eleanor Rigby? That's just like yeah, in someone's I mean, drawer I mean, the, now. The, the stories go, go <clears> long into the night, but I remember in 2007 that this work print of this film uh, leaked as well, that and Hostel 2 in 2007. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely someone trying to get back at them, but, um, but yeah, I just think it's it's just a massive contradiction throughout. But I do feel sorry for him because it, this was an opportunity to do something different that was very quickly taken away from it. However, I, like Carson said, I can't go too deep into the wonderfully naive thing because you're in Hollywood. He would have no, he would have known that this was going to mm -hmm. get because um, he because he because he he did speak to John Carpenter, who is a man of of, of a story in, in Hollywood that that suggests that. It's not going to go the way you think it is. And I think if if the creator of the franchise, the, the man who built it, has been disrespected by the same people, what hope does Rob Zombie have, who people would just think is a, is a hack? I don't. I just think there's a very strange mentality going into this, which feeds into the uh, final product, no doubt. 
<laughs> I've not seen any other Rob Zombie features. I think it's clear if you know me, like this is not my style of film, even if like it was good, let's say. I just like, I don't know, I look at this feature and I see the ideas and I understand like, I more so even feel bad because the pressure is on him, right? You have to make a film accepted by wide audiences with an established franchise while also trying to do something new with it. Like that is an incredibly hard struggle to hold outside of even studio pressures or whatever. And I think that's where a lot of this goes wrong is with his attempts to make this as a remake that everyone will enjoy. I think he should have just gone so much deeper into the well, like he did with Halloween too. Um, I, I, I just look again at like, if a director needs to use unneeded sexual violence in order to make something uncomfortable to watch it's just like well i don't think you're good i think like you're just cheap i mean with I, the sexual you know. violence you can actually say that okay we haven't seen any other uh, other of his films that he he just Correct. he's but he's a he, okay well if you look well you could say that you you honestly can't say that all oh, the sexual violence is needed in any film like it probably isn't right like but then like sometimes there is a yeah. there's a point to be made um What's the point when he's breaking them out and he they bring oh, no, this woman here, to the no bed? And there. It's going to make an appearance later. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but many but, times from. But uh, what what he's doing? He's tr- he's at all. Co- I think at all costs attempting to unsettle you, because and he doesn't know where the limit is. As in, like where when it's enough and that he can be certain that okay, I think we're we're unsettling enough in here. So so he will have people shouting over one another. There'll be non-diegetic mu- music like blaring in this in in, mm-hmm. in in the speakers like it's not even like there's an alarm going off in the hospital because when he once he stabs someone, the alarm goes away. <laughs> like it's just like okay, so it's yeah. just for us to hear this. So you can't hear shit. There's people shouting. There's 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 violence happening. So people just bang their heads against the walls. There's someone getting raped in the background. It's just ridiculous, right? And, yeah. And and it's in all scenes, like in the beginning, in the sort of um, breakfast scene, which is just the only instance where it kind of sort of works, is where you have these people arguing with one another, and there's this baby crying. Um, there is no a non-diegetic crap going on. There's music go- going on the radio. There, it's like a scene in Waves where they, they have a they have an argument and there's this sort of beeping sound of someone didn't who didn't fasten their seatbelt just to kind of amp up the tension. Um, but it's all sort of like ramped up to eleven. This is how he operates. So he would take like we so talked do you about agree this. That he's a bad director. No, you I think don't think he's bad a bad director. director. Isn't that he... not the like most <coughs> simple way to formulate stress and like being uh, uncomfortable and have done in an incredibly he's... cheap matter? Look at like I, I could Paul agree with project that. or look at any other project that yeah. like really uses it in a clever way. You are just throwing a lot of sounds uh, onto it just to make it uncomfortable. Much less half of this shit is like murders and rapes. It's like I don't know. I don't think I think that's an incredibly cheap director who doesn't I, have the capability to do something smarter or more purposeful or more impactful or more you know anything. Or I, could, I could agree that to a point I mean, that yeah, that you, you have a point in here. But then again, he's he's styling himself after Toby Hooper or early Wes Craven. He this is what he. I wants don't see to why like... that's good. You say this every time with like inspirations. I don't give a fuck what your inspiration because, is. Well, if it's bad, it's bad. If you're cheap, you're cheap. No. Like I don't care if you're mo- your. It's the house that built it, Jack. Someone else. <laughs> well, but he's an original guy. He is his own spirit. He's his own filmmaker. Let no. him live and die well, on the morals and effectiveness. No, but that, like I'm telling you, this individual. is what he wants to do. And then say in in the sequel, for instance, or I another think film, he's, he's cheap, more so. he's, he's <laughs> more he's more successful in in doing that. But he he does this for the same 
for for that reason because you just oh I just want this kind of energy in my film. This is how I want to make my film because like you're I'm everyone is a sum of their inspirations. Like you can't escape that. And if you and if you refuse to acknowledge that, then you're making a big mistake as a, a I as think a choosing to well. validate someone through that is making a huge mistake and giving people benefit of the doubt. But no, no, I'm not giving him a benefit of the doubt. I'm trying. Uh, I'm I'm actively trying to behave uh, like a crime scene investigator and trying to figure out why this film is is what it is. And, and I'm trying what, to behave like a tr- critic, and I'm trying to say if it's what, good or bad, and it's no, bad. No, no. So okay, well, I'm be, I'm being a critic in here as well, and I'm trying to uh, not not just say that it's bad, uh, it's bad or good. It's just why is it bad? Why what it was because to it's do cheap. To, no, <laughs> because you're doing the most simple thing. No, no, no. Because that, you're exploiting the sexual no, violence this, of women to make people uncomfortable in the scene. That's nothing to do well, with it. That's why it's well, bad. Well, Toby Hooper did that as well. Wes Craven did that as well, and just maybe they're shit directors it. too. Maybe no. just because you're old doesn't mean you're good. Who knows? No, no, no. 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 Sorry, no. Like, I'm sorry, Carson. Max, go, go on, go on, because I'm, I'm, I'm just angry now. Over the limit here. <laughs> well, okay. well, I do want to say something about Toby Hooper because um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two is fucking awesome and it is violent as hell. Um, and it's not just violent for the sake of being violent because Rob Zombie, that's all he does. He just tries to put on a bunch of blood guts to, I don't know, provoke, but it's not working because it's just, you know, it's just cheap and it's exploitative. But when you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 or 2, it just doesn't feel exploitative. It just, I don't know, it adds the tension. There, there, there's some form of palpable t- tension t- throughout. But in Halloween, uh, the first one at least, there is no tension. It's just cheap. It's completely gratuitous. And it, it it's very loud, too. There's a lot of screeching screams very loud noises. Even when just um, I would say glass windows breaks, it feels loud and it feels cheaply loud too. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's um, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also like like nudity comes out of nowhere, even yeah. without this sort of sexual violence context. Like there'll be just why is this woman naked? Yeah, but do we need her? Do we need the mother? Doesn't the mother work as a as a pole dancer? Yeah, she's a stripper. and then like the the girl, you know, they remake remake the scene with the ghost sheet. It's like why 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 do we have to see her in full frontal? Like it's absolutely unneeded. Like you can you can you can work around this. You you can infer that she's nude. You don't have to see it, right? That's the bad side of exploitation. Can I I feel the fire here? Just just to give. I don't know who who this is going to help in this this amazing debate but please don't help from, carson because he's already he's already no, no, kind of on like from, up, up at 11 <laughs> from from what from what i i understand about the production <coughs> I, I was led to believe that there's the um there is one sequence in this opening we're talking about in the prison which was questionable and it's not the sequence no one is talking about here the producers weinstein the wine scenes and perhaps zombie or not i don't, I don't know had no issue with this rape sequence but the actual one the actual the actual issue they had was if they wanted to show Michael Myers killing Danny Trejo's character. This is this is the these are the producers we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Let's put it into context. They're debating whether or not Michael Myers should be dehumanized by killing Danny Trejo rather than a depiction, uh, and which is which is there just for pure shock value. Let, let's be quite frank about this about about a sexual assault that really just gives a gateway for these two people. To get killed by my so she uses it as a plot device as well. That feels hollow. That feels wildly too hollow. But in the same breath, that and what Jakob's saying, it is a trope of it is a trope of um, horror, undoubtedly. I don't re- I don't know where the blame lies here. I don't know if Zombie wanted that. If it is, it's 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 just it's almost anemic. It's like I don't know why you would want. I, I don't know what that that scene <laughs> says about anything really. But also, 
Um, whoever thought that that might have been a, a great idea is quite clearly someone who is inundated with, with genre convention and not someone who actually looks at this film and, and, and progresses it. And I think that's a, it's, it's an interesting sequence because it ultimately sort of embodies the whole film. There are sequences in here, there are actions, and nobody in this screenplay wants to discuss it, aside from its sequel and aside from the Dave Gone Green things, and I say things with, with with air quotes. I just don't understand why. Again, like we, we the, the these people who are in charge, these writers, a, a zombie has to be taken account there, are proposing sequences here there without as such a lack of substance, and and, and again like. I think if you're going to depict murder on screen, I think you've got to have you've got to have substance. There's that, there's other old um, screenwriting um, cr- critique where if someone has a gun, there has to be a reason why. Like the, someone has to. I come scan. Yeah, yeah. I've also, I, I don't know if it's that one, but um, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. Check out gun is just like if you see a gun on gun on the on like on on, on the wall that you you sure as fuck is going to be fired. Just- <laughs> yeah, but I think I, I can't remember who said it to me. It might not be a Chekhov's gun thing, but it was like if someone is going to say, is going to say something, you have to lay it, layer it. Everything has to be uh, well has to sort of work back into its screenplay. And um, this is a perfect example of where that goes tits up, where nobody gives a shit. I think I think if you actually think about it, this is as hollow, flat as the previous two in in in, in H H two O. Um, mm-hmm. And Halloween Resurrections. I think. I think aside from Buster Rhymes, I think this is probably one of the most hollow, vindictive, um, and generally most well a, a shell of itself. And I, I think that sequence in itself that we're talking about is an embodiment of it. Why is it there? What does it serve? And who put it there? And once you answer all those three questions, you sort of realise that nobody's got a fucking clue on this film. Um, let me complicate it, complicate it a little bit further. If you in, if you actually listen to like his commentaries, you will figure out that there's quite a lot that happens in the moment. So there's, there, I would like to see the actual script, the shooting script, and then compare it against the film because I have a feeling that there's going to be differences. Like I wouldn't be surprised if sort of the the absolutely unneeded, gross, obnoxious rape scene in the in the um in the cell was an in the moment sort of decision maybe by the actors who were just uh, like you know like psyched up to 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 just taunt him and it was just oh let's fucking do this and then Rombi was like fucking keep rolling right and then everyone's just doing this and as as they and they captured as it is. I no, wonder if you ask the woman that would be interesting, right? But it's a plot device. It feels premeditated. Why would they enter the cell? It's, <laughs> it's not this it's most definitely a that that will be in its screenplay. <laughs> I mean, it may be premeditated. I mean, I wonder how far in advance it's premeditated because he he does have these elements that are just uh, seemingly out of nowhere. And then if you actually start digging, yeah, 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 they, they just you know shooting. they're just like deciding on the day. These what does this matter? Shooting on the day. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it matters in so far as it explains a little bit why it's a mess. Because if if there's decisions sure. made on the spot and then. As you, as, as we're, I think, kind of getting to it as well. He's not the best director in the world. He's not the best filmmaker in the world. Like, if you don't have the sort of talent to kind of just keep everything just under the lid, then this is going to be a mess. So is this may be this versions? is may, this may this may be part of the reason why it's a mess. Is it present in both versions? No, when they when they add test screenings of the director's <laughs> cast, pretty much of the movie, audiences hated, understandably so, that scene, and so they reshot it. But it's literally just him being walked from the cell and he just mm-hmm. breaks free and kills two guards. 
which like in a way it's kind of like it's not better it's just mm-hmm. makes yeah, no, even I'm, less I'm, sense I'm, in a way no because not, it doesn't make sense anyway. and I'm, I'm like I'm, I'm disgusted as I'm watching this I'm like why am I what what's what happening here this is both com- of them make no this sense is, not, is, not to fuel the fire here right yeah. but from from what we understand about these producers this franchise I can't see I, granted this is this is he, he's not unblameable here but I feel like if that's his director's cut or that's the work print version you're telling me that two producers told him that he could or could not have that that sequence in his film or are we saying that they were, it was mandated to be in that film for me I, it might be a bit of both don't be wrong but I think that relies more on the on the on the producers mandating that he has to put that in his film because mm, once you what, look at I mean what 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 the rape Oh, undoubtedly, I think um, the sequence. It could be uh, that sequence... he shoots way more than he needs, so it could be just one of the versions no, that they shot, no. and then it's like, oh yeah, he he wanted to put it there, passed it uh, uh, across the producers' desks, and they didn't. Do his even... other hmm? films have like rapes like this? Oh yeah, involved. Don't. So then I'm gonna say it's probably not just the producer. <laughs> no, uh, if you, th- yeah, those if you... film, those no, no, the, pro- are... the producers wouldn't mandate it. This is it. This is Rob Zombie's sort of unchecked. No, those those films when it's used. Look, we, we spoke about this on the last Jewel podcast, and I watched a film at Vif Miracle, which I've missed at Venice, where also has has a, an incredibly difficult um, sexual assault sequence, um, and it is genuinely violent and exploitative, just like just like it it, it is here. Um, when you see those other films of Rob Zombie, when he uses those those actions, he does re- reaffirm them. The by by these characters are horrific, like. He's not. He's he's villainizing when he depicts it, but he also doesn't. He doesn't do it like a um, like a director's satisfaction where he's like showcasing it and and he he does it in an art house manner. Like there's definitely there's the different tones you can shoot those sequences in, and you can get away with it in in, in a way where you can showcase it and you can have the gravity of that situation, or you can do a three minute unedited take of it happening. Where that 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 to me is like that's crossing the line. If you're going to showcase those sequences. Have it where it has genuinely consequence and effect, whereas here, it's used as a plot device, and that's so fucking murky waters for me. Where I'm like, Ugh. it's the same with the last jewel we spoke about with Alina Carson. It's used for a pivotal plot de- device, so the film is ultimately devised around it. So it, that's the sequence, and it broods out. Whereas this isn't like that. This is it garnish. Could... This is yeah, garnish. That, to me, for? that's like I, I, again. <laughs> I don't want to get too stuck onto this, but. To, no, but this kind of illustrates quite a lot. But, but to, for me, like, if the producers are arguing over having killing Danny Trejo, and and then oh, it's only the test screenings that told that told the producers to take that out, that's more of a, of a vindication, an indictment of, of of Hollywood as well. So not a vindication, of well, indictment. If you want to get into the producers, like they clearly watch really. the Devil's Rejects. Yeah, no, no, you know, but you know, you look at you look at the Friday the Thirteenth reboot that came out two years after this, um, mm-hmm. and then you realize like. They have no idea. Like the people are trying know. to homage. Well, I mean, people are trying to homage convention, well, but not because well, really what they want is just they keep want to keep the money c- coming in. That's no, no, all no, no, this no. is about. Can I jump in? Here. Jump in. Yeah. No, no. Can I, I, can I just finish? Because I'm, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the the producers who are re- who are remaking these films like Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, right? Not not Scream because it's a different entity, but these type of entities, right? They think that genre convention to homage it is through the sexual exploitation of the 1970s or the 1980s when they came out. That's not why people went to go see those films. 
it, it it's a provocation in in a way, yes. But it's it's an it's an again it's an indictment not to use that word again of the era that it came from that could easily be forgotten. And once you take those out of the seventies, the films still work. So producers don't seem to understand that when you get these films in the in the late late two thousands or seven or eight or nine, uh, you you they, they think that people went to go to see those films because the the the, the little small actions of sexual activity in them which is just ridiculous. Like It just proves that these people whose fathers, mothers made those films before them, some of them fucking made them themselves, really do not have any idea about what those films were to people. And again, like the, the new Halloween films are moving on from that. They quite clearly know from nostalgia where we, we're, we're here for character, not a pair of chesticles on screen. You know, like... It, it is a perfect example of why producers, writers, journeymen who get on a project that people adore generally do have fucking zero idea of what makes things tick. And this film, again, is a perfect example of that in every single matter of its production. Sorry, Nick, go on. Yeah, like we were going back to what Jakob asked some 20 minutes ago at this point. <laughs> but like, what, what was the cause of the problem? I do think there's one name. And it's Platinum Dunes. Platinum Dunes, who produced Texas Chainsaw Remake, like Michael Bay and his team, they made it in 2003. That was the first big remake that kind of changed the game. And if, like, we're talking about the earlier ones, like, even something like the original Texas Chainsaw, but especially the sequel, there's humor, there's some levity in it, there's a style that's that makes the film still very enjoyable, very entertaining. You watch the 2003 Texas Chainsaw and it's depressing. There's barely any light in that film. It's horrible. It's disgusting. It's gory. It's um, just violent. Way more. It's just violent. That's it. It's just violent. And producers are not necessarily creative people. And the Weinsteins were never creative people. They were good producers. They knew where to put their money, but they were horrible at making creative choices. And they saw the success of that one. They saw the success of the Amityville horror. And I think even the prequel of Texas Chainsaw, they were like, we're going to make the Halloween one. We're going to put the money, give it to Rob Zombie. But they were so obsessed with following those trends that they just lost focus of what mattered. I think if Rob Zombie saw his vision through in a completely like pure way, even with likely a lot of questionable moral choices in there, I think it would have been miles better than this film. Mm. It would definitely be original. It would it definitely up. be original, for sure. For I mean, sure. <laughs> no, no, you, know, you mentioned this. I, I'm just thinking, like, when you when you hear stories about how Bob Weinstein and Harvey Weinstein would interact with directors, as in, like, how, how they would try to impose changes on films, usually they would they would when they would succeed, the films are shit, right? But you could you could you could tease out the ones that actually kind of stand up to them a little bit, like the Rodriguez and Tarantino and all these guys who kind of just almost like bounced bounced against him. It's like, oh, Harvey's away away home. Let's shoot this thing the way I want to shoot them. Shoot it because he he would then just show like, look, this is what I wanted. And they would say, and Bob would say, and that's that's actually pretty great. Thanks, right? So if someone doesn't know that actually, what you need to do is push back. Then this is what you get. You get a producer led movie that's kind of just. I still think it's a. Why it's, are we saying it's producer led? If his other films are like this, why would we say um, this one? Well, it's not like this. It's well, not, okay. no, 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 no. This is what's missing. This is what's missing. This is not particularly <laughs> self-aware. 
if if we're watching the other ones like uh, like the devil's rejects uh, 31 like all of those movies have a lot of very very dark but still they have a lot of humor in it they have a lot of what, what you were saying Jakub as well like they're grindhouse films yes. and grindhouse films usually were fun uh, and as know, nasty as those films can get they're still fun like you're uh, watching the devil's rejects following of three horrible brothers, three horrible siblings, just going around America, just slaughtering people left and right and seeing all sorts of nasty things. But it's still fun. I mean, it, uh, Devil's Rejects is pretty much the, house, the last house on the left from the perspective of the, of, uh, of the rapist, right? <laughs> yeah. like pretty, it's pretty much what it is. But, but then, like, when you think about this, like, well, you'd, uh, Carson, you'd have to actually go and watch like the last house on the left to kind of see the energy that this guy's going after. And then you'll see that this energy in here is completely missing because we'll, we'll get to it in the, in the sequel where he was granted a bit more freedom. And this is, this is when you get more zombie in the, in, in the equation. In here, it's kind of, it almost comes out of nowhere. This is where you kind of just say, why is this rape in here? Because you'd be at, attuned to this a bit more. You'd, you'd just excuse it as, as, as part of the scenery. Almost like this is what happens in here because there's just way worse shit happening, and and almost it would feel like this sort of the scene in the in the cell is like a break from from worse shit that you've just been subjected to, right? So, so it's kind of well, that, that's jarring. fucking murky, Apple. That's murky. No, well, well, because the the shit he he gets up to in his films kind of just crosses the line more, like, much so... much worse. Um, are, you, but... are you are you are you are you infer? I'm not. This not you. Are you inferring that Rob Zombie is, is using this sexual assault sequence? to underpin that Michael is is going to do further horrific actions and that's just a taster <clears throat> well, of the violence in the film. Well, you could you could you could explain you could explain even the other way around. You could say that oh are you trying to um romanticize Michael Myers because he almost stands in defense of this woman. I'm not sure if she survives this in but um, I think she runs off yeah, I think she runs um, off. yeah. So this this I think this is only there not as a plot device. It's uh, it's for as a tool to unsettle the viewer. It's for you to feel gross. I mean, he succeeds in this, but it comes out of nowhere because it's, it's, it's the wrong it's, type of grossness. Yeah, I feel like that quote just like fully like said what I'm trying to say better than anything else. Like, if you look at that, you can say that and be like, "This director is good." I guess we have to agree to disagree because well, I think it, that's he's like an revolting. <laughs> he's an acquired Ooh. taste, right? Because there, there, there yes. are people. But who there shouldn't be an acquired taste. taste for rape. I'm sorry, but like, no, it's no. Not rape. It's Let's not do this too much today. on this one scene. I think. No, <laughs> no, it, well, this is why it's like onto, onto it a bit. Too, you're reading into the scene a bit more, but. It's kind well, of I know like, it's you're saying it's an acquired taste, and if you're a fan of Rob Zombie, you, you'll just be okay with it because he does. I'm, all I'm not a fan of gross. this, but, I, but we'll, we'll like just... that's inexcusable in my opinion. I'm I think sorry. it's. I, think I just think like, that's like crazy. I think okay, this he's is what happened. T- like it's 2007. It's an acquired Those taste. If you are have... fine with sexual rape and assault no, being he's okay acquired... and on screen, it'll be great for you. If you have issues with the violence against women sexually, you're going to have an issue with his filmography. I mean, I mean, that's the statement, I guess. I mean, if you have an issue in, in, with like watching violence in general, like stay steer clear of, of like a grindhouse of the seventies and eighties. Like this is just not for you, right? But I, the, Texas Chainsaw but... Massacre, what a brilliant thing to bring up um, from Max because like that film uses violence and it's disgusting, right? Like viscerally, it's very yeah. gross film. But they yeah. have a purpose, they have a thesis, yeah. and they have a point where it's like, okay, I don't know if I want to watch that film again just because it is gross. But I have no hatred towards that film. I think it's brilliant. We uh, did the top one hundred films of our list. I think it's one of the best films of all time. I mean, the second or the first one? The first one, the, the first, first one. one's barely violent. 
Like it, it, a lot part of violence is inferred. A lot of violence is inferred. But um, part two, part two is more of a comedy than it is a horror movie, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's what makes the violence fun. Uh, yep. in, it's you playful, know, right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> he, uh, zombie in in the first Halloween seems not playful because he's it, it's like the film's too busy trying to romanticize michael myers which is fundamentally a mistake this is like joker yeah. all over again right but you know <laughs> but before joker was but there's a difference story. with joker though because you can to some extent you can sim- you can sympathize with someone that's being ostracized by society if you will uh but you know he's he's not at first in the joker movie he's not a psychopath he's just you know He's just misunderstood, and then he sort of becomes the Joker, the psychopath. But in the original Halloween movie, Michael Myers is already a psychopath. You know, something just awakens inside of him, randomly kills his sister, and then he becomes the shape. There's there's no expl- there's no other explanation for that. Oh, he's we always need- been the shape, right? Yeah, he's always been the shape. We don't need 45 minutes of backstory that we will learn. Uh, how he will become the shape. We don't need that. We only needed like the, the, the first five minutes of the, the first Halloween movie, the John Carpenter one, that explains everything we need to know. And then the fun begins. Agreed. You know, <laughs> just with a bit of connective tissue here on, this, yep. on the same t- topic of like uh, the depiction of uh, the, the female form, the one highlight of this film, which I think would have irked quite a lot of people on release, is, is Daniel Harris um, as, mm. as, uh, as Anne. I think she's really, really good in this film. I think. She's quite clearly got the chops in the acting of the three girls. Um, and I think she, she takes quite the brunt in this film. I think the depiction of her um, is, is very interesting on two fronts. First and foremost, the fact that she played Jamie, Jamie Lloyd in, in, in the franchise beforehand is a bit murky to begin with. But if I remember rightly, she had to audition for this film because the, the, the producers didn't want, didn't want her on this film. Um, and the only thing that, that, that she was able to get her audition um, over the line was she had to accept and, and that to uh, the, the fact of that she would have to be nude in this film. And when I was reading it, when I was reading it, watching the film, I, there's, 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 <laughs> there's a way that comes across on, on, on paper. And then there's actually watching it where like she's, she's running around uh, with, with a, with a top off and she gets, she gets absolutely mauled uh, to, to be quite frank about it. Um, in, in the film, she's almost like, a, like a doll, almost like she's just beaten She's stabbed. She's kicked. Like everything, every single tick. She she's almost like the, the rag doll of the, the whole franchise. Which not if that's again to convey Michael. I think we, we've got it. You know, what I mean, you don't need to hit it over the head again. Like it's, it's quite obvious that this man's a psychopath. But it it just oversteps the mark again. But the fact that that, that woman had to audition and and to, for only to get the part was that she would she would want to well not want to she would have to be um, naked is actually like tragic and the fact that i know she, she's come out and said that she was actually quite glad she did it because it's it, it she, she shed that she shed of the skin of the uh the, the the little jamie lloyd and and stuff but i think the fact that she was jamie lloyd and she was that young kid in this franchise and then in 2007 she's getting uh, getting a, a top off and showing um her body i think that's also used i'm not i'm not trying to put one-on-one together here but I think that's also used by the producers to get certain people involved in the film and the fact that audience members who enjoyed her would also get to see her in a different light, which I think is slightly perverted. But I think, again, it's an idea about modern Hollywood or Hollywood 2007, the fact that the only reason why she would even be cast is that she would have to bear nudity 
is a is a tragic, absolute tragic um, aspect of this tale. And I'm going to say the exact same thing when we go to part two, because it, the same thing happens. And the, the fact that they do they do they do an actress who who was I think tired of four films, almost as Jamie Lee Curtis at one point. I think Donald Pleasance has five. It's a fucking appalling. Like seriously appalling. I think I think what they do to that character, what what they had to do to that actress, what that actress had to do to get that role, is is basically daylight backroom casting. Um, wow. That, that no one. Well, no. I, yeah. Well, you be in this film. Bare, bare, bare skin. I mean, what you're going to have to do? I mean, it's basically just daylight Weinstein behavior, of which he is <laughs> the, the the culprit of. So I think it's, when you watch it, it's like fucking. Like when you put one and one together with this film, it's it's the worst recipe um, imaginable. Like everything we talk about here is just fucking terribly done. So, I, mean, I mean, go on. Um, no, because I'm just wondering because um, like we're also we're kind of waltzing around. The fact that we kind of want to kind of move on to the to the sequel as well, so this may be a good point to kind of because we're basically just beating a dead horse at this point, right? Can um, I say one one thing about the um? Sure, yeah. I, have, I have two. I have two small things. Seriously, <laughs> just two small things. First, okay. first and foremost, people keep on saying about the Laurie Strode here. I cannot. When you watch it, I I thought when you look at it, and you look away, and look back. It looks like Megan Trainer, and I was oh. like, what? You know, remake. Um, but secondly, as well, like we, we talk about, I don't want to use this person's name because I don't, I don't want it to fuel this argument. But there's a recent story that's come out on a film set where someone's lost their lives because of set safety, right? There's a bit in this film where someone jumps off a balcony. I don't know if anyone's read about this, but the film cuts to black, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like a really awkward cut. And that's how the film ends in the original. Not the original, but you know what I mean? Like, and But the, ultimately, then we get Laurie Strode. She shoots Michael. She kills him. She shoots him in the head. Bang, blood. Michael, Michael's human. End, end of story. As the person who was actually in the stunt like almost paralyzed themselves doing mm-hmm. that scene. And What's what did they do? Yeah. They just went back and shot it again. Like this has been happening for quite a long time now. Stunt men and women they never they never barely get a mention and they risk their lives daily. Well, Olivia Olivia Jackson, <clears throat> the last Resident Evil, bit was a, became a paraplegic because of a set accident. It's it's time now. There's a it's not someone again, died at Deadpool too. Yeah, I mean, again, it happens all the time, and you know, we go back to the Brandon Lee story, which is tragic. But there, but 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 part of me is like, if his name was not Brandon Lee and it wasn't the connection to his father in Hollywood, would that story be as big as it was? And I have to feel no, because when you see these stunt women, these stunt men, like literally risking their lives like to do this and then for the film just like I mean, there's no mention in the end credits of it i think there should be i think there should be a documentation the end credits no animals or people were hurt in the making of this film i think it needs to say it needs to say that people lost their lives and i mean people dedicate films that don't get me wrong but um i think it was, it was terrible i thought the, the the picture sequence when he's like literally in in the bottom of the house is the worst part of new ones i've ever seen on cinema i'm like it's like what can what's I get it like okay, and the fact that like he was meant to say boo because that was her child nickname, but he couldn't do that because of the the issues of convention they had because he was meant that Michael Myers was meant to speak and say like her mm-hmm. nickname which is in the film, but the producer said no you can't do that. Like I, I understand that Rob Zombie about this film right it is is partly to blame. I think there's depiction of sexual violence 
that's fucking murky, and that's an understatement. It's casting that's an issue. But to be fair to him about the actual Halloween conventions, the man has his, his hands. I mean, we're going to use the, the Tarantino thing. He's, you know, he's, he's painting with his left hand, you know? Like, <laughs> unfortunately, he, like, he's got his hands behind his back. Well, he, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> and he's fucking finger painting. Like, trying to sort of push the boundaries every single turn and he wasn't allowed to do it makes you think retroactively. What was he actually allowed to accomplish within this film? What was premeditated? What was premandated? What did he actually have to say? Because the actual prequel idea is, is, a, is a screenplay that was set at the asylum like two, two three, four years before he even set on, on foot on production. So there's, there's, there's story elements that have come over. Like, just to, just to end on part one, like, what did he actually have, have, have the capability to do? For me, like, I, I'm genuinely, for two hours, I have no idea. I honestly don't. And, and this is someone who has seen most of his films, if not all of them. I have no idea what's his in this film. No idea whatsoever. I'm, just, I'm being serious. I can't identify. There's no convention of what he's got here, aside from the basic obvious, which is a detriment to the era or the other producers. I just, I struggle and I'm sat there and I'm thinking like, is it because he's like six foot seven? Is that the one thing? I, I seriously, I've got no idea what, what Robert Zombie actually made in this film, aside from just having like in a straight jacket and being said like, right, direct. Can well, anyone else tell me what he actually did in this film? I don't think he does much. Okay, so that, this is a good point to kind of just uh, transition to the second one. So how about we just quickly, let's bullet point. How, what do we feel about Halloween 2007? Max, do you want to go first? Well, like I've, uh, like I've said, Halloween 2007 is a very bad movie. Uh, but there are some good things about it. Like Malcolm McDowell is fucking awesome as um, Dr. Loomis. And of course he's no Donald Pleasance, but he's a terrific actor. And I actually really like the scenes um, with him and Michael Myers in the, in the prison, I think with the psych ward uh, when he uh, interrogates him, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, and the, the wig is phenomenal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's not a very good movie that I really liked that much. So. Yeah, fair enough. Carson, do you want to share your final thoughts? Yeah. Quickly? I mean, you know, in typical, uncut, in typical Uncut Gems fashion, I came on here with a two-star review for this film, which it will be going down to one star. I think it's trash. I think it's disgusting. I think <laughs> the director is absolutely, like, one of my least favorite directors. I think he's stupid. I think this movie's bad. I think this is problematic. I think it's gross. I think it accomplishes nothing. And I think it's just like inherently such a flawed idea. I hate it. Point blank. <laughs> Nick. I like this film. <laughs> I don't know if my positivity has come through this much since we focus a lot on just the one scene. But I, I think it's a good film um, with all the flaws that it has. It's, it, it, you know, you said it, Yahoo. It's an acquired taste. Like, I'm not holding anything against anyone who doesn't like a Rob Zombie film. Like, of all the fucking directors in the world, I'm not going to defend Rob Zombie. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I think if, if you're in the mood for something just gnarly, brutal, I think that's as, as you know, as rushed as the whole remake portion is. I just think that the Michael here is very menacing. Um, great effects. Um, I don't really like the music in this one, weirdly enough. I think they misuse the Halloween theme a lot. But other than that, I was rewatching it and I enjoyed it more than the first time around. 
um, I, I see, I get all of the all of the criticism that was thrown at it today, but I think for something that wanted to be, you know, a, a fresh adaptation, which in a way it's a lose lose situation. You're never going to make anyone happy if you're making the same movie. It's the same movie. If you're making something different, well, it's not doing the same thing that the other one did, breaking the law or whatever. I think he did the best he could, um, given the situation, and I really, really want to watch the four-hour documentary <laughs> making of, of this because I think it's going to shed a lot of light um, on some of the production problems. And it has Udo Kier and it has Brett Dourif. When I mentioned them, that's why it's also a good movie. <laughs> it's my boy Udo um, is in it. Um, Jack, I'm going to treat your previous statement as your closing closing opinion. Is that okay? Or do you want to say something more? Oh, I'll, I'm going to just, I'll be very brief. Um, like Carson said, I think when I, when I come on here, it's nice to watch films that I usually wouldn't be able to or to, to talk about films that I have a certain relationship with and, and to talk about other people's relationship with it. Um, the worst part of this, this podcast is when you, t- when, when you watch a film with a certain eye and then you go back to it um, and everything you watch about it is terrible. Um, very few times it's happened on here. Uh, this is undoubtedly one of them. I think my score would probably go down to a one as well. Um, the more we talk, more I talk about this film, just the fact I never want to watch it again. Um, I just, I'm just, I, I'm, I wouldn't, I don't want to like sound like I'm fucking like off, off my rocker, but I'm just appalled with how bad this film is. And when you, when you, when you, when you read detractors of this film on Letterboxd, IMDb, etc., when you read the 2007 reviews, often enough, I'm like, I don't really understand why. Like, it's so like, I mean, Halloween's it's it's a it's a diminishing return franchise. Like, there's one film out of what 15 of them. Where it's remotely positive, what 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 do people expect? But this is like, whoa. I mean, there's a bare minimum, but what should have been like recounted here, it's not hit whatsoever. Um, and it's it, it's often enough, it is absolutely appalling. Fair enough. Okay, I think it's a mess as well. Very very difficult to redeem. It's it's a mess on all accounts. I don't I don't want to I don't say anymore. I think I've said enough on this. So how about we quickly go through our top threes, bottom threes, and then quick, and transition into Halloween. To Carson, do you want to go first? Top threes, just you know. I genuinely have nothing. Like I, I'm sorry. I get that it's like the gimmick <laughs> of the show, and I don't mean to break the show. My return. I literally have not a single moment in this where I can point and be like, good. Like I. <laughs> I have nothing, okay. I'm sorry. I'll allow it this once, okay? <laughs> do you not even like Sid Hig? Do you, do, you, do you like Sid Hig's cameo? I think once you get to that point, I'm so mm. done with it. It's really hard to be like, well, the cameo's great, right? Like, <laughs> it's it's so, like, I'm in such a point of just hating it and of disgust. It's just like, well, it's just too far gone, you know, for something of that little substance specifically. <laughs> if this had, like, an amazing third act, let's say, sure, maybe then it would be like, okay, more rewarding. But, like, something that little, uh, I'm good. Um, Max, top three. Oh, top three. Yeah. Number three, I would say Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo. I never expected to see him in this movie, and then when he showed up, I was like, "Oh shit!" There you go. That was great. Uh, number two, I would say it's. Uh, <laughs> I've already said Malcolm McDowell. I love Malcolm McDowell, and he's um, really good in this movie. But number one, I would say it's the score. I actually really like the score from uh, Tyler Bates. I think it's a nice reinterpretation of what John Carpenter did in uh, the 1978 um, movie. And he actually does infuse his own sort of modern twist on the Halloween theme that I thought worked. So there you go. Cool. Um, Nick, top three quickly. Number three, it's love hurts. That <laughs> moment, you know, just, just speaks to me. 
um, Michael is outside and, you know, love hurts, loves cars. It's a great moment. And then he segues into the, the, ma- the massacre in the house, which again, titties unnecessarily. But it's, it's a good scene, I think. I think it works in its own right. <laughs> the second one, it's, it's a conglomerate. It's all the cameos because, you know what? I think it's, it's the Grindhouse thing. I'm a sucker for a good cameo. And this one has Brad Dourif, Udo Kier, Ken Forey, Danny Trejo, Dee Wallace, oh Bill Mosley. So, so many, just, just an embarrassment of riches. Could have done with more Udo Kier, but whatever. And Adrian, um, Adrian Barbo. Yes, when yes. Adrian Barbo was cut. <laughs> and there was more Udo Kier as well, but whatever. Anyway, and the last one, maybe controversial, I really like the final shot of the film. You know, Laurie shooting oh. Michael in the head and just screaming. And it transitions on her as a baby being held in Michael's arms. You know, it's, it was Eddie. human after all. <laughs> it's touching. Love hurts, man. Okay. <laughs> you know? Uh, Jack, top three. Do you have any? Yeah, this this was fucking rough. Um, I, I, I I always quite like Sherry Moon Zombie. I think she brings something interesting to the role of of Michael's mother. I think she has a bit more to play with, and 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 that story arc in itself is actually quite heartbreaking, if not never get examined. I think young Michael Myers, uh, Dig Furch is number two, by the way. Um, I think it's, it's Dig Furch. I, I can't pronounce his his name, but I think he does a really good job of trying to manifest layers at such a young age in, in this film um i think he does a really good job uh, I, I know they try to get him back to the sequel but he aged but if he, he does like a halloween uh 10 year anniversary on youtube it's really interesting to hear him speak about but one thing i do want to bring up right is because <laughs> i was gonna i was gonna say daniel ha- daniel harris but i'm not right the one thing i found really interesting you know when i said that megan trainer looks like the lead actress in this film daryl sabara is in this as, as the childhood michael myers bully he married her. Like, what? how weird is that? How, what a fucking coincidence! Maybe you saw that, saw her like scout, and they're like, "Wow, like I, that's my dream girl." And then met someone who looks spitting image of her. What a wonderful! That's where I'm going to leave the good positives because that's my okay. interpretation <laughs> of true love. Uh, okay, that leaves me. So for me, the breakfast conversation is like the sort of uh, closest he ever ever got in this film to William the Texas as well. Yeah, <laughs> closest he ever got to the sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre energy, which I think he's always after. Um, where Michael hides behind the door after Laurie finds the girl, I can't remember her name is, and then it's, it kind of pops out like in the in the Prince of Darkness almost. It's it's, it's an it, it's one interesting scare. Um, because it, it's not it's not sort of punctuated by music for some reason. And then how Michael kills his stepfather is quite effective. I kind of liked liked the sort of brooding energy of, of that scene, but that's pretty much it. And then all, although I, I keep asking myself, how much duct tape do you have to use before someone actually wakes up? And how shit face do you have to be? Very shit <laughs> that notice. Um So bottom three, Carson? Yeah, shocking. <laughs> Number one will be the rape. Uh, number two, <laughs> let's go ahead and go just Laurie Strode in general, like absolutely atrocious. And like this character has been done dirty by this franchise so many times. And I just want to see her like get her story. I thought it was going to be in the new ones. It's not in the new ones. It wasn't in H2O. It wasn't in Halloween 2. And it sure as hell is not here. This might be the worst Laurie Strode yet. So like, and, and that's including H2O. So like it says something, right? Um, and then I guess I'll go the killing of the bully uh, or like when he's in the principal's office and he just like casually leaves. And it was just, I don't like the beginning of the film mainly because I think just the inspiration of like, he's from a dysfunctional home. Is that why he like goes on a murderous rampage randomly? And then the mask, like, I don't know. It just, it didn't really work for me, but um, I guess I'd go with those three. Awesome. Max. 
Yeah. Um, number three would <laughs> probably be all the gratuitous violence this movie offers with little to no feeling uh, with the violence. You just feel, well, I mean, you just feel disgusted, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel rewarding or justified to have this much violence in a Halloween film, even though uh, first Halloween was pretty violent and the, the newer ones were, were quite violent, but there is some sort of justification or, or fun with that violence. I, I just thought, you know, Halloween kills the violence. It's, it's a little excessive, but it's still lots of fun, in my opinion. Uh, number two would be um, young Michael Myers. I don't like him. I don't like the actor. that I, I don't remember the name of the actor that played him, but I just, I, I, I don't like him at all. And uh, number one is um, Laurie Strode. Shocker. Um, awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terribly annoying. And I just, I just hate how Rob Zombie in this movie, particularly um, when Laurie Strode talks to, uh, talks to Annie, I think, and another, I don't remember the name of the other girl. And they, they sort of have these, these conversations as they walk towards school. They amplify the, the laughs and the really, really, really annoying um, so yeah. it's supposed to be obnoxious, but it's fucking yeah. It's it's, it's it's not really obnoxious. It's just like I don't know. It's it's very annoying, and the entire time I just I couldn't care less about um, how Laurie Strode was portrayed in this movie versus you know how Jamie Lee Curtis brilliantly portrayed her in uh, over for over forty years. So fair enough. Uh, Jack, bottom three. <sighs> <laughs> sexual de- sexual depiction here is is off the charts poor um the fact that this has zero mythology crafted is number two and the, the first the biggest sin is that there's absolutely no direction uh, it's a walking contradiction um and it says hollow and this lack of investment as the Gus van Zandt psycho remake with the Vince Vaughn um it's a testament of the issues that modern Hollywood is plagued with it has no idea to serve its audience no idea to serve its characters, no idea to serve its performers, an absolute fucking prism of pain. Oh, <laughs> Nick, bottom three. Well, uh, number four is the rape scene because everyone has put number it on. Four. I already had oh. it, but, <laughs> but just because everyone's put it, but I wanted to have something different then to change it up a bit. Um, I hate the, the nurse who gets killed in the asylum because she's fucking dumb. <laughs> she's like, oh, you're like a little bitch boy and just gives him the back like, for no reason like, what do you think is going to happen woman um i hate that michael comes back during the climax in the most like like the movie's finished she's in the car we're ready to go home and then he just comes back again and there's another chase like we don't need that it's it, that's what made the movie tiring for me that's that's what like where i broke i was like i'm like kind of liking you but you're making it too hard for me <laughs> to stick with you um and lastly, like we've mentioned Laurie Strode. I think the main problem is the introduction scene. And it's like, it's another breakfast scene and she's just like fingering the, the donut or whatever. Oh, <laughs> so like, my like, bottom three. <laughs> like, oh, come on, man. Like, like, oh, come on. Just no, no. I get what he was going for, but I don't like it. It's one of those few creative choices that he made where I don't like it. She became a Rob Zombie character. <laughs> she could have been so much more. But anyway, yeah. Oh, I thought I would be the only one. Okay, no. <laughs> okay, well, I've got a bunch, but uh, let's just go. The kid has a dead cat in his bag, and his mother is like, "So what?" <laughs> it's just like, "What the fuck's going on?" <laughs> it's, it's just another one. Just okay. Nicola just beat, beat me to it. How Laurie talks to her parents, and she fingers a donut, and she's just like, "Oh yeah." I'm like, "No, gross. Stop it." And then absolute pinnacle, the rape in the cell. It's just, oh, 
it's fucking gross in the in, in not even not even the in like if I don't know if you understand this, but you know, in a Rob Zombie good way. It's just an unneeded, unnecessary gratuitous, over the top, totally un, totally unnecessary. Stop it, cut it out, leave it. <sighs> that leaves us with um, transitioning to Halloween too. some sorry fucking jag off to the emergency room tonight. So I suggest you take the easy road out and hit the bricks, Dorothy. <laughs> Trust me, some filthy Dirty hippie. You don't want me doing that. Copy that, Tanto. Guys! Fuck! So Halloween 2 uh, picks up where the original left off, with uh, Laurie wandering the streets in, of Haddonfield in a daze, covered head, in to- head to toe in blood. Naturally, Michael obviously comes back to life, despite being shot by Laurie in, at the end of the movie, I think in the head. Though we can't really tell because the events are recounted in a rather long dream sequence. We'll get to it. Anyway, the gist stays the same. Michael is still out there and driven by a vision of her mother and a white horse. He makes his way to his hometown to finish what he had started and reconnect with his long-lost sister, Laurie. So now, allegedly, Zombie was supposed, wasn't supposed supposed to come back initially, after the, um, even though the movie made money. And a pair of French filmmakers, Julien Marie and Alexandre Bustillo, I butchered the names, I'm sorry, um, were attached to the project. They later made Leatherface, so there's that. But he made eventually. He was eventually asked to return, also in a writing capacity. In contrast to the previous film, the sequel was shot on 16 millimeter and ended up more violent, gory, unhinged, and distinctly, distinctively zombie-esque, which was um, basically act Akad's suggestion. Any uh, suggestion, anyway, as they uh, gave him more freedom and they, you know, didn't whisper, whisper into his ear that much. Um, so, despite being more daring and visually ambitious. Um, Halloween 2 did not endure the fans anyway, and in the same way the previous film did. Naturally, critics hated it again, but instead of over 80 million that Halloween made, this one made only 30. So anyway, let's dig into this. Where do you stand on Halloween 2? Is it better than the than the uh, than Halloween, or were the critics correct? And then was it you know haphazardly slapped to get an unnecessary gratuitous, or is it just a roller coaster of gore that asks you to vibe with it? What is your take on Halloween 2? So how about we start with Carson this time? The biggest fan of the first one, right? Um, this it's quite a jarring film, isn't it? Right, because like not just in the context of the first film, but like Rob Zombie film, but the franchise in general. Like you get Michael Myers dreaming of a white horse and his mother, and it's like, okay, this is a choice. I don't know if I was fully with it at first, but then as it continues, I think this works overall. I think it's messy. I think it's uneven. I don't think it's as confident as the 2018 film when it comes to recontextualizing the story, um, which is why I think the 2018 
2018 film was just like a step above this one but i think it works overall i always have said i've wanted this recontext like a humanized not humanized but just like a deeper conviction within michael myers it's why i like halloween 5 the best i think it clearly has the best element of giving him conviction giving him a character giving him something interesting to chew on so he's not just literally a body killing people who cannot be killed i think this works well i know a lot of people are like it's lynchian you know i don't think this is necessarily <laughs> what david lynch would do i think that's probably a buzzword people are oh, using we'll get directly. there <laughs> but um i think the visuals are fine enough i think it's again i think it's uneven i don't know if it all works horror wise but when it comes to giving michael myers a depth giving him something to chew on giving the audience something to not even understand him but just like be interested by him I think this does a rather solid job. It's not Halloween five, but it's rather solid. And compared to the first Rob Zombie film, I mean, you heard my thoughts on this podcast. That is a pretty, I say glowing upgrade. So I would say much better job, still too gratuitous, still a little gross at times, still unneeded when it comes to sexualization, violence and such. But like, at least here, it feels like there's more of a purpose to it all. So that's good. And this is specifically what I was saying. The first film felt like it was too tied to the origins of Halloween and the other editions. This one is Rob Zombie really making his own thing with it, which I appreciate and what remakes should be. It shouldn't be shot by shot the first film. It should be instead trying something new. And this film accomplishes that. So I'm overall a fan. So before we actually go any further, because I think, okay, let's, we won't be able to Hillary out of this. Um, as in like well Hillary I'm using this as a verb as in like to you know shoot the uh, top threes and bottom threes and then and whatever you need to say um, so I, I think we'll just have to just at, at some point um, if you can just say like I need to go that would be probably great because then you know you want me to just say like I need to go uh, no no just it, when you need to go <laughs> just just say so that so, so you can just say you're I need goodbyes. to go oh you're now <laughs> Okay. Like three okay. minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'll, okay, I'll leave it to you. So <laughs> have a nice day. Have okay. A... Goodbye. <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs> yeah. It's a... so okay. Yeah. So as as I said, we we can't we, we can't like Hillary out of this and then pretend that everything's happened because sometimes people have to uh, like leave prematurely because we're trying to organize it across like four time zones. Um, which is, I don't know, like, I, I, I'm amazed how we can pull this off with, with, like, five people in the room in, like, four different time zones. It's, it's just honestly mind-boggling to me. But anyway, Carson had to leave because, you know, he has had other stuff to attend to and he's on, on like, I don't know, just six, six hours ahead or eight hours ahead of where I am. <sighs> so... Put me to go next. So, Jack, how about you just lead the way? I think at least we've, we've, we've gone far enough that at least we, we got Carson's opinion on this as well so we can at least, um, you know... Um, we, we won't be pretending <laughs> that, you know, like, oh, it's just, why, why is Carson silent? Like, Carson had to leave. I'm sorry, guys. It just, <laughs> just this happens. But I'm, I'm happy enough. I'm super happy that he actually managed to, to make uh, make it on, onto the show because he was actually saying that he wouldn't be able to make it. So um, it was it was absolutely amazing to hear his voice again. <laughs> uh, yeah, so how about we just, you know, show must go on, Freddie Mercury. Um, Jack, Jack, yeah, Jack. How about you uh, follow up or from Carson's yeah. glowing um, review of Halloween too? So, so in my opening statement for the first Halloween two thousand seven, I, I said that I watched these two back to back originally. Um, the worst fucking decision you could ever do because I thought if if, if you the issue I, I didn't really have a lot of issues when I first watched it, slightly naive, but um, it, it's it's 
it's made in a conventional way where you can follow it, where it, it, it is mandated to a point where it's receptive. So you can, you can, you can get something off it, even though that when you, you dig deeper, I think the first Halloween's almost tragic. Um, I didn't like this film when I first saw it, I think a few years ago. In fact, I think I fucking hated it to a point where I couldn't understand decisions were made in here. Um, I'm going back. Like, I think I was, I think I might have been 15, 16 when I was watching it because this this came out when I first started high school in 2007, the first one. And then 2009 came out. Uh, this this film came out where I was I was in year nine, which is two years into it. Um, and I wasn't I was never really a big fan of horror films. Um, so I'd, I'd always seen the iconography, the posters and stuff like that. And the saw ones because in England, you have a bus that goes past and always has advertisements. So. Um, the horror films always like when you get a bus to school, home and away, and, and stuff like that. So it was always like indoctrined in the images. Um, and I watched it, and then um, I'm not going to tell you how I watched them, but I watched both of them. And I think I watched the theatrical versions, and um, I just I couldn't I couldn't understand first of all what was going on, b why he'd made certain decisions, and even and then I'm going back like even a few years ago now. Like I'd watched it in America, and I was like, this is tragic. Like what was he thinking? And then obviously you do your research and you realize the issues he had on the first production. Um, and then you, you sort of understand, okay, he's, he's pushing the boundaries. And then you watch his other filmography, like the Dell's Reject, House of a Thousand Corpses. And you think, yeah, yeah, this, this, is, this is quite normal. This is not, this is not particularly an issue within this filmography. But the one sequences I couldn't really understand was I didn't like the, the um, Weird Al Yankovic sequence. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like the, the White Horse. When I watched this back a few years ago, uh, maybe two, three years ago, I watched it with Sunshine on Halloween Night in Chicago. Um, and watching it again um, this morning. Um, if this came out now, I think people would hail this as a second coming in, in, in horror. I think this is one of the best depictions of trauma on screen in horror there is. I think it's superbly shot. I think it's enigmatic. I think it, it holds wonderful weight and mysticism. I think it's unique. I think it has a punch. It's an indictment on social commentary of, of reality TV, specifically the likes of Dr. Phil, these, these death by television, um, a, 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 a really interesting conversation on, on pharmaceutical medic, medic, medication. Um, and that, that's only, that's only the, 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 again, the subtext of context. And then when you re reappropriate as as what Rob Zombie envisioned that it's not actually Michael Myers, it's Laurie Strode's story, and the fact that she may be doing these things, and and, and it's not him. He's he's not alive. He's dead after the uh, after the first film. Um, adds another layer of context to it, which I find fascinating. Um, this is a five star film for me, and I'll, I'll again we'll we'll have a we'll have a wonderful commentary about it um in the next hour or so don't be wrong but i'm just i'm just genuinely appalled the fact that like 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 nick said you are doomed if you follow the checklist but then if you don't follow it and you build a foundation that that needs a bit of work people just fucking bombard it with negativity it's not built properly it's not right something's wrong um this came out in the wrong era. It came out in the wrong time. And um, I don't think this film will ever get the uh, reappreciation re 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 it deserves because of its director who's attached. 
which is a very sad state of affairs. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in. Again, we'll talk about it a bit later as well. Um, but watching it back, I fucking I love this film. Um, it's nasty. It's grim. 16 millimeter looks fucking outstanding on screen. Um, this is like the only thing we, I think it's, isn't it available on Blu-ray? But it's so rare to find in England. Um, it's severely out of print in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it's and never been available in the director's cut, by the way. I don't yeah. think it has ever been released in director's yeah. cut. So I, I, won't, I won't speak on how, how I saw it, but <clears> I have a box of it. Um, which is like a screen factory does everything like in America, you have the, the wonderful you, box of it. I was, I was seriously pondering the idea of dishing out 40 quid on an imported um, uh, director's yeah. cut on this. But I was just like, I, no, I can't do this. Especially that I don't even know if it's region free. But anyway, I'm, I'm, okay. you know, it's not, it'll be blocked. Um, it'll be region, it'll be region <laughs> blocked. But um, I think looking back on it, I think that when you watch it with the new wave horror, I think it's fucking excellent. I really do think it's a really good good turn from Rob Zombie. And something that feels really different as well. Um, I, I, I honestly really enjoyed watching it again. And unlike the first film, I don't really see how my opinion would change over time as well, although it has done already. I don't feel like I would, would go back to that state. Um, I think it would only get elevated within time with what the uh, the Blumhouse series are doing at the moment, which, again, we'll, we'll probably touch upon later. But um, when I said my, my final thoughts on, on the first film, when you watch films, and it's the worst part of being on this podcast where you realise, oh, my God, I think I hate this, and I once liked it. It's always a difficult conversation to have, but this is one of the films where I liked it, and then I think I've watched it, and I'm so excited to talk about it, that I think I love this film. Oh, Nice. Uh, Max, do you want to follow up with your or initial impressions? I mean, now it's a, a little bit sort of, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And Max, do you want to go? Do you want, do you want to go on next? Sure. This movie's fucking awesome. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I remember watching this. I didn't really know what to expect because I didn't really like the the other Halloween movie. And as soon as the hospital scene came on, I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> And then it went crazier and crazier and crazier. And I said to myself, this is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest depiction of PTSD on screen. Holy fucking cow. That's all I'm going to say for now. But Okay, so I need to make a mental note because we need to dig into this then. So hold your, hold your thoughts on the PTSD. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the theories. Yeah, because then like, there's quite a lot of shit that's been said already. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm itching for, to to get to this. So Nick, <laughs> oh, so to, I, I love this film. <laughs> there's no two ways about it. Uh, for me, it's honestly the second best Halloween film, right after the first one. It's, it's. I think it's interesting what you said, Jack, about like it's, you shouldn't be watching both back to back. Because revisiting both back to back, it was it's it's hard to separate the two from one another. Um, I think without the first one, with all of its flaws, this one wouldn't work nearly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, it almost recontextualizes some of the weaker aspects of the previous film. Um, and I agree with much everything that's been said. Uh, looks gorgeous. Zombie went back to his 185 aspect ratio, which is wonderful. He was supposed to do that with the previous one. Producers kept me from doing it. And you can see that he's at home with this with this aspect ratio because it's the way he frames scenes in this, the way it's shot. Um, it's also kind of a transition movie for him 
because after this he made Lords of Salem, which is also heavily stylized. Um, all of his previous movies are more, you know, handheld, shaky, raw, intense. And with this one, it does. <laughs> I know Carson is not here, unfortunately, left. But I would actually say this is one of very, very, very few occasions where the Lynchian comparison kind of applies in a way that makes sense. Oof. Um, well, you know, it's it's like fire walk with me in a way. Um, okay. I, I can I can probably see even. Is maybe... it just because the horse is white? That's one reason. If the horse were black, I'd be like, well, probably not. But no, but even jokes aside, it, it, like Fire Walk with Me is a film all about trauma, all about um that about another type of trauma, of course, but it's it's still exploring that, exploring someone who's lost complete hope um in themselves, in the world. And this is the same thing that Laurie is going through in this one. And the, the dreams are a our way to escape reality, our way to comfort you, but also to creep you out. There's a lot here to chew on. And I do think that it's, uh, it's, just, it's just weird that it exists. <laughs> like, I think it's a small miracle. And I love how subversive the opening is, because I remember, kind of remember when the film came out, like a couple of years after I was reading reviews online, or just when I was going through my Wikipedia phase, to be clear, when I was like 12, 13, um, I remember a lot of the criticism was thrown at the film not being like Halloween 2 from 1981. It's like, oh, it starts in a hospital. It is 20 minutes and it's, it's a dream sequence. Like, I love that. <laughs> it's almost like a, it's like a middle finger to everyone who complained about the, to like people like us who wanted maybe more, of the original film to be closer to John Carpenter and things like that. So it's kind of like, you know what? I'm giving you exactly what you want right up front. And then I'm doing my own shit. I'm not doing the opposite. This time around, we're starting with what you want. And then I'm doing my story. And it delivers. And this one has as nastier violence, but it's also framed and executed in a way that's more, more uh, tactful. Maybe, I don't know. It's more lyrical. If, if violence can even be considered lyrical in a film. Um, and there's also more humor, which is much needed. I think the, the group of people that Laurie's with, they're not the greatest people, but at least they're slightly better than the friends from the first one. Um, I really like the party sequence. I just, I just yeah, I love this one. Here's your Jakob's thoughts now. Um, I'm afraid. Quick, <laughs> quick, quick te- technical question. Is are you have you had you guys be, seen this before? Is this your like second or third watch? Second. Watch I think this, is, this is my fourth. Oh wow! It's twenty time. Twenty fifth. What? Uh, no, no, no. It's first time. First time. Oh, okay. Oh wow. <laughs> um. All oh, right. Because um, I thought I would be the only person. Because I'm, I'm, I'm walking into this and I'm realizing I had never seen this before. Because I was released in two thousand nine. And in October 2009, which I think this this was released in October, was it? Like this didn't. Yeah, fuck because it, the, fir- they didn't the first fuck it up one and was released in, in like August. August, yeah, they missed <laughs> <Yeah>. February. <laughs> oh no, hold on. Um, August 28th, 2009. Anyway, well, I, I don't know. Maybe well, well, U- uh, maybe in the UK was August. Trivia oh, no. question: Why why were they both changed? No idea. The, the, the first one is Saw, and the second one, I think, is Paranormal Activity. Oh, that may be it. I mean, Paranormal was, was big, right. big, big, big at the time. You're right. Um, anyway. And it, and it crushed it at the box office. That's why it made no money as well. Mm-hmm. It was um, 9th of October in the UK. So, 
I um I had never seen this before because at the time I was like working hundred hour weeks, so I had zero time to watch to watch films for like a year. Uh, so it, it was it, it's like a I don't know it's a it's a period of my life I barely remember. So that was great. <clears throat> a little insight into my in, into my into a life of a fucking PhD student. Fucking hell, Jesus Christ! Like talk about trauma and PTSD. Anyway, I could write a book on this. Anyway, where I was where was I? Halloween two. I walk into this completely blank with the only knowledge uh, pre- proceeding from the previous film, which I had seen in the cinema and never and never revis- revisited after that, after, uh, until, you know, two days ago or three days ago. And holy shit, this movie slaps. Mm. Like, <laughs> this is one of those Hell rare yeah. occasions where I think we have agreement on the, on the show. Hell yeah. <laughs> this doesn't happen in here. <laughs> on both on both films, I mean, like, and I know Nick plays devil's advocate. It's like I like Halloween 2007. I, I know like you don't. It. I give it like 3.5. The first no, you, you like the idea of this film, <laughs> and then yeah. they sold you on Udo Kier, and I'm just and then, but you should you should actually even hate it based on the fact that they cut out like most of Udo Kier out of him. Out of the what film. if Malcolm <laughs> McDowell was played by Udo Kier? Oh. What if they switched Lubis? <laughs> That's cool. a five star. You would have an interesting <laughs> accent as well. Would have been absolutely fucking incredible. <laughs> but any, anyway, so I walk into this and then I'm, I'm seeing like this is gritty. This is 16 millimeter millimeters. Oh my goodness, this is weird. And then the, the opening have they have the balls to actually open with this sort of hospital chase, which is bloody as fuck, with Octavia Spencer, by the way, in there. Octavia. <laughs> it's just like holy shit. But this is such a like from minute one, it's just pulsating. It's just okay. Well, we're in this, and then it, it's it's just like all of a sudden, like the lore's out the door. Like I know this is supposed to function as sort of like an homage to the to the original Halloween too, in a way, but it kind of just leaves this at at the door. It kind of tells you that this is something that Zombie was saying. It's like okay, can I do it my way? Fine, okay, this is how I'm gonna do it, <laughs> and then it rocks because <laughs> it's because it has this. Like I know Carson's just left, but um. This has this sort of energy of something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Last House yeah. on the Left, like, like as though someone ha- happened to film a serial killer in in invade a hospital and they just hid in a closet with a camera and they left it on the bench somewhere. It's just like it's a, almost like functions like a, a as a found footage film in this sort of way that just feels real, even though it's just horribly gratuitous. It just feels just tactile and gross and then and, and, and dangerous and dreadful like when she when she hides in a in a little parking booth you're just like fuck this this is like this thing doesn't have a second pair of doors like this is gonna be not, not marriage and then how they waltz wall, wall, out their way out of this this is like this this has been a 25 minute long dream sequence right it's just amazing like it's uh, <laughs> and normally i'll just say fuck that like what, why are you doing this but it, fun- it functions well it's great in that way and it feels like honestly, this is the closest he's ever gotten to kind of just ha- capture the sort of energy of the sort of seventies exploitation in yes. re- through a modern lens, like through a so- yeah. through someone who loves this kind of shit, and it just cooks, it slaps on, it's just it's it's brilliant. It's a it's a uh, well now I mean I, I would have to revisit the twenty eighteen, but for me this will be now the third my fa- third favorite entry in the, in the franchise uh, you know after the original and the 2018 and this will be the third but i need to revisit the, the david gordon green to reassess however it's just I, I, to have it, it just tells you that this is this is something something that made by someone who no longer has his hands behind his back right 
and it felt to me i know i put out like a cheeky tweet today but it kind of feels the way i felt when i saw like batman returns when when you see like oh this is tim burton that you kind of just know from like beetlejuice and whatever and then it's just all of a sudden like they give him they give him batman and this is just like okay, well, he kind of feels like his film but not really and then they told him oh yeah you can come back for another one and they said well i'll come back if you let me do whatever the hell i want and this is what happens and batman returns is just full tim burton on display this is full rob zombie and then I know Carson in this opening statement just before he left, he was saying like, this, this works. This is, this is great. That's exactly why it works because it's no longer these bullshit scenes that you hate in the original. They're no longer out of place. Everything's just the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be dangerous. You're supposed to be always on your toes because you're just in a world where just, well, anything can happen to you in the worst possible way. And then just people are gross and obnoxious um, and everything's kind of, to attune to the same frequency so um <laughs> so so <laughs> i know that there's quite a few things that have been said so i think we just need to get into the theories because i think we're all in agreement that this film's amazing so how about we move into that i don't know what's your thoughts on this text i see jack's kind of like hold on i need to swallow a, i don't know there's, there's one there's one thing that <clears throat> perplexes me about this film that everyone said here and it's not true that opening sequence is not a dream sequence I don't know why people say that. Well, it's, it's more because because it ends with um, it ends with her waking up. When 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 she that's the convention, Anna, no? <laughs> yeah, when she when she goes to see Anna in the hospital, there's an edit, and then that's when she meets Octavia Spencer. And Octavia Spencer leaves her, and then she she walks around the corner, sees Octavia Spencer with, the, with a knife wound in her face. Mm-hmm. That's the start of the dream sequence. Everything from before that is deemed reality, is it not? Because is this a reality or is this a, or is this something that if, if this is part if this is a part of the dream sequence there's a part of the dream that's kind of uh let's just say embedded in a memory and this is where it kind of veers off the of the deep end yes so, so i think you can read it both ways but then if you yeah, actually yeah. if you actually filter it through what didn't really occur to me when you mentioned this as in that michael myers is actually dead mm-hmm. and this is what uh, like spoiler alert that like lorries are behind all this that actually starts i mean i don't think it works totally i think you can poke holes Agreed. in it um, but i like this uh, but i kind of like this sort of um, wrinkle to it but yeah mm. so let's let's dig into this what do you guys actually think about the sort of idea of um because i think they weinstein's re- retroactively i think now i've just digging up for the sequel they planned to actually put it in writing that Laurie was behind all this, as in like Laurie in the final sequence was the one who killed uh, Loomis instead of Michael, which would then basically just set this in stone that actually Michael's just a figment of her imagination. This is her trauma personified, right? Which, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about this sort of theory? And then the idea of well, Michael just being, um, I think Max, you mentioned this, like being the sort of the personified PTSD. Let's let's dig into this PTSD and then Laurie dreams and whatever. How how about that? Well, instead oh, of on, instead of representing, um, I would say in a sort of superficial way the trauma that Laurie Strode lived in in the first movie, uh, they just they put the audience smack bang in the middle of that trauma with the elongated hospital sequence, and it's a constant state of the violence in the first movie was just nasty for the sake of nasty, but now it's just absolutely fucking brutal and you actually just feel it in your chest like it's superbly cathartic the 
editing is incredible. The way it cuts from one um, knife stab to Octavia Spencer's neck, if you will, it's just masterful. And then it's a constant state of panic the entire the entire fucking time. And that's how uh, in Laurie Strode's head, um, that state of panic is being represented because once she wakes up, um, she's entirely panic ridden. Everything in her head is completely um, conflicted. It's 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 I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but it's it's really, really it's really, really something special because you're stressed out the entire time, because even if the hospital scene was a dream. Michael Myers is still out there and um, he's just waiting for the next, next Halloween night, if you will, to make his move. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite scary. It's quite frightening, to be honest. The depiction of mental illness on screen is a very difficult and, and touchy subject, right? Yes. It can be done. And when it's done subtly with nuance, it's incredible. I think fl- the first thing that comes to mind is Florence Pugh Midsummer. That depiction of internalized depression brought externally slowly but surely in a, in, a, in a truly transcending performance. This this doesn't have the subtlety and nuance of that depiction, but it's very important to show mental and physical scars. And this film does a brilliant job of showcasing trauma, PTSD, and physical and mental illness on screen. And I think that people don't give it the plaudits, A, because it's in Halloween, and B, because Rob Zombie's attached. Because Rob Zombie, because he's made Dell's Rejects, couldn't possibly be able to depict nuance in his cinema. So they're, they're the two reasons why I don't think this film gets the credit it deserves. Those two themes in this film are so integral and are so bloomed because he doesn't rest his lines on wanting to depict Michael, but instead reaffirms that back into his screenplay by crafting more on, on, on Laurie Strode's character is what the first film should have been about. And it's what Cam to try to do. It's the reflection of nightmarish imagery on Laurie Strode. The shape, you know, Michael Myers, the mask, it's all secondary, but it always gets reaffirmed back into what makes Laurie go, go bump in the night. Ma- masterfully done. Here, it's, it, it works a little bit more on the nose, but it's so perfectly executed, it's unbelievable. There's, a, there's an interesting comment here like about psychosis and, and, and dealing with, with those alienation issues. It does feel slightly exploitative in a horror film to do that because you can get away with sort of the enigmatic nature of it, again, to these theories. But it's very clear by Rob Zombie's um, ideology and perhaps, again, through, through the film that, the depiction is quite clear that, that, that Laurie Strode is, 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 is battling this demon on her own where Michael is basically just a third party and he's, he's, he's an ideal, he's, he's, an, he's an identity that's out there that, again, reaffirms her mental, mental illness, which ultimately blossoms and, 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 and evolves into, well, murder, let's say. I think the film has to do it in a subtle way where I think if you read this film as is, it works as a, as, a, as a slasher film where something comes out of the night that's meant to meant to uh, have not, you know, been alive. I think it works particularly quite well just on that front, but it also works on a deeper level. More, and again, this is like a conscious subconscious element where that mysticism has worked really well into the screenplay where you can have those theories. And I think to balance those two arcs, 
for those two narratives, readings, if you will, is actually a very difficult thing to do, not only on the screenplay, but direction. And I think Rob Zombie does really does some really good stuff here. We spoke about earlier about like, you know, this comedy, I think Nick said it, how he installs that, like there's just some like humor in here. That opening sequence where they're in the in the in the excuse me, when they're in the ambulance. And that this guy who's played by, he's always like a scene stealer, but he's also in uh, 31 as well. Richard Brake. Yeah, he's fucking horrific uh, to watch on screen. Um, I would just watch him. He the says, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, like, he, 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 he creates the mood. The atmosphere is all there. The, the, the visual aesthetic is there. And he reaffirms that this is a Rob Zombie film. And then he uses the, he uses the, 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 the strange cow in the road and you just think like that's just ridiculous but it but it doesn't give much time to it it's just there you you blink and you'll miss it and it doesn't it doesn't the, the film never diverts from what it's trying to say and then we like the the, the image where it the camera is just stuck on him and he's, he's quite clearly discombobulated and he's just saying fuck 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 which is also a very rob zombie thing to do just yes. give, give give the character only the, the lines as in fuck Yes, fuck, but, fuck, 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 sit on my pole. Like, well, really? I, I, I've, I've said this before where it's very difficult to analyze horror, and people often do because they say no normal human being would do that. But if you were in a woods with a man chasing with a machete, you wouldn't act normal, would you? Like, That's why the, I, yeah, I also say that. Like, when you say, oh, why is she running upstairs? Like, if, if, a, if a guy in a, in a costume was chasing after you, wouldn't we be thinking straight? <laughs> yeah, if you, were, if you were a 17 year old girl, I mean, like so when when he stood there in the car and he's like he's got no idea and he's saying that i think it's actually a really wonderful sequence of how how that's projected as 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 tension as anxiety um stress um you know just like terror i think that's it's, it's really well handled and the camera doesn't cut it stares it makes us watch and does it get slightly silly well yeah if you're reading to zombies filmography but in this one entity it, it really does have like quite a lot of weight and that's that's the sentiment i have throughout this film when 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 she, she she like she's walking through the uh, the town and she sees Daniel uh, it's Daniel Robert's character the Frankenstein and like he cuts back to her and a therapist and she's saying like I just it, like we were down there there was pumpkin patches in the middle of the town like that's a panic attack I, I I can I can find solace in that you know I think it's really well handled and I don't know if it's a if it's a really conscious thing where he set out to do that because that those themes are not present as thick as they are here. Um, but it just in a, in a 2021 world, 13 years, well, not 13 years, but 12 years after the fact, um, this film has grown to something quite extraordinary. Um, and I think inadvertently so, but if anything has strengthened it with our, with our comments, with our conversations on men and mental illness. And also as well, just to end very, very quickly here, um, I don't think the twists or the theories detract from that um, conversation as well, because there's there's this ideology where people will use those as plot devices, shamelans, a, a, a criminal of that, if you if you will say. Um, criminal? No, I, I look, I, I think... I don't want to divert the conversation, but, you know. <laughs> no, no, but, you, but the, the, <laughs> there are... You can throw shit at that wall and it'll stick. That, that's, that's what I'll say. Whereas here, um, it doesn't really go into that territory where it's it's clinical to the fact that it feels like it's using it as a plot device. It feels like a genuine manifestation and a genuine conversation on it. Um, I will say as well, um, very quickly, the one thing that really annoyed me about uh, people that was like, oh, he's only putting Sherry Moon Zombie in it because that's his wife. 
I think that motherly um, uh, factor in this film actually blossoms into something really quite profound and poignant where he's a very, he's, he was a young child and you talk about humanizing him. I think this film does a fucking wonderful job when, 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 when she's there, you know, giving him the white horse. It's like, it's a really dark, brooding, cold opening. Uh, and then it's, it's again, it's filtered through, and it's very on the nose. Again, it's like it's not nuanced. Which is, all, but... which is also a bit of a, a post fact thought that they they had they 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 wasn't in the original script. They figured out, oh, I want a white horse in there, so they they built a shed that looked like the like the hospital. They re, they reused shots of her walking into the hospital that was de- they were deleted from the original because they had they had shots of her walking into the hospital in like four seasons of the year, right? <laughs> they nice. never used. <laughs> yes um and the kid's different so it was, it was clearly not planned <laughs> so you know they tried well, I, I, they, 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 did, they did actually cast that kid and sh- they shot test footage with him as well which is strange and then because then he was too old yeah i suppose strange. so but it's 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 a bit it's a bit odd as in because you could you could then figure out if this was all sort of part of the grand concept they could say oh well i don't know <laughs> fine but anyway I, I kind of have a feeling that this with like the 70s films uh, where people like to project and like we talked about this on the Prince of Darkness episode a little bit um, when people like to project things onto horror films like there is a social commentary embedded like we can talk about PTSD and things like that in, the, in here but I think it may be um, a, almost a strong too strong a compliment to into to, uh, to towards the director to infer that this was done in here on purpose oh no uh, that's what i was that's what i was implying i think it's definitely inadvertent and i think the film has grown into that conversation yeah because you, you'll remember just as me i don't know about nick and, <clears throat> and max but the conversations on this film when it originally released were not very good and i think he he was he was the reviews were fucking terrible yeah. I mean, he 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 was thrown to the wolves in, in a fact where um, it didn't it didn't feel like for a long time he would be able to get out of this. It was a very sticky situation where they didn't they give it to two French filmmakers, which again has been contradicted and said that that wasn't actually the plan. It was a bluff, but they actually signed them. Then he came on board, which was always the plan, and then he was told to do anything he wanted with it, and then they weren't happy with it. I, this whole franchise is about contradictions again. I mean, it's, it's like, all it's like seeding things for for the future. So depending on the critical reception, they say like we have always planned to give him the free oh, ha- free for all. And then I mean, if, James it, if, if is, a, is a is a great proponent of that, this oh, is my Terminator three. Oh, me that a few times, my friend. You know what I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, like if something like happens, like I don't know, the, the critics shit on this, then this is how you distance yourself, like throw him under the bus. Ah, you know, he did his thing and clearly didn't work. Mm-hmm. Like we tried to stop him, <laughs> so you know. <laughs> Do you know the, the one thing that's always interested me though is that is is this um, let's call it the the dream sequences, which the, the hospital sequence, which is which is quite clearly a conscious... ultimately the first act of the film, yeah, right? twenty five <laughs> minutes, which is, which is fucking brave. Um, is a let's say it's a throwback to Rick Rosenthal's Halloween two, right? Mm-hmm. He is on record, this director who made this film, Rob Zombie, that not only has he never seen that film, that he actively dislikes every single sequel that came after it. Yep. Which but that's that's inferred by the critics. No, no, no. He said that. Um, no, no, no. This Halloween two connection that's inferred by the critics who despised it before because of that. No. Mm, no, I, 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 I'm not too sure. I, 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 that will that will be fuel <laughs> on the fire, no doubt. The 25 minute, um, um, you know, you know, get out of free jail card, I suppose. But um, 
I find it very interesting that he's implemented that in this film because I'm going to give him a lot of credit here, and I don't know this, but I think the fact that he he did do that was a fact that you think you're going to get something you know you're going to get. You you think that because I've done convention in the first film, you think I'm going to do it again, and he's and he's and he's he's used that to the power of 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 again his own storytelling where it, it reaffirms and it reintertwines back into his feature because it doesn't really take anything away from the narrative. It's, it's like a, it's a full stop. Yes. But it doesn't detract from what's yet to come. Um, and also crafts character craft suspense again, reaffirms back into the back end of the film, but it also does that thing where it gives anticipation of where it's going to go because you think as an audience member, Again, Jacob, you, you, you might, uh, Max might have felt the same thing, where if you see this for the first time, you think, oh, my God, he's, he's, doing, he's doing Halloween 2, if you've seen Halloween 2. And then he takes it away and you think, oh, wow, okay, that's the first, like, the, the, the surprise. I've been, like, juggling whether that's a conscious decision or not. And if it is, it's somewhat genius. It genuinely is. It's like, it's like the last Jedi of its day. I don't like that film. Yeah. It's, like, genius but but we've just given credit for this film inadvertently growing into a society where conversations and especially new wave horror, horror sorry are tackling mental illness in a very more nuanced and direct way well no they they handle it more like now now it's sort of more it's socially acceptable to have uh, those conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But how horrors nowadays try to do it, they disguise it in in symbolism more. Like you'll right. see, like the Babadook or the Nighthouse, they will have these. Con- there's conversation hidden with beneath the primary layer. This conversation yep. in here is kind of part of the narrative, right? Right, correct. But if we're going to give him credit for the the themes, <coughs> and I'm saying it's ahead of its time, I don't know if I can do the same thing about the narrative because I don't think if because if because if he's done that narrative purposely knowing that, then. This, this this film, for me personally, gets heightened to something quite special there, that he is so far ahead of the curve in the, in the fact that he knew full well that the previous entity was so conventional that he would mandate this purposely looking like that to then craft something vastly different in where it would be a character study. is something we're talking about, a, a, a maturity in a director and possibly in a screenwriter, that is very few and far between. Um, and seeing his filmography uh, uh, with, with, with a leveled eye and a level playing field, this is something that is, is, is a fish out of water for him, let's say. So I don't know how anyone else would, would, would interpret that. I don't know if it's conscious genius or the fact that it was just a gimmick that brooded into something quite special. It would be your opinion on the film, but I just wanted to bring it up because... It's a really interesting topic to have because he's either a fucking genius with this or it's a trick that blossomed into something that was quite extraordinary. I don't know. I would like it to be the former. But from what I've seen, it wouldn't really imply that way. So I don't know how anyone else feels. I think one thing that's important to to remember, especially considering the initial reception to the film, um, it's something that came up weirdly enough with one of my uni professors i discovered like this year that one of them was a mass is a massive halloween fan <laughs> that never came up during class otherwise we would have talked about it um we were we were chatting about halloween 2 this film 
and he told me that he saw that in the cinema and he hated it. Mm-hmm. And when he watched the director's cut with his boyfriend, it was like, Jesus, this is a completely different film. Like, this is nothing like what we saw in the cinema. And they haven't seen the theatrical cut, but I know they, they made quite a few changes. Um, and I wonder if a lot of the negativity surrounding this film to this day, it's primarily because of that. Because more of the positive reviews that they read are always about the director's cut. Um, what's the ending well, that you saw? No, I've, I've seen the director's cut where she's she she's killed. <laughs> okay, because I only saw the theatrical cut because I don't have access yep. to it. Yeah, Max, I, which I, one did you see? I watched both theatrical cuts because okay. I, I watched them. They were both on Amazon uh, Prime Video. Mm-hmm. So mm. these were the cuts that I that I watched. I legitimately had no idea, honestly, what you guys were talking about, about the rape scene in the first movie because that's not in the thea- theatrical cut, I guess. Out, man. <laughs> so, so I was like, wait, what? <laughs> did I miss something? Because <laughs> of the first one, I actually acquired this, which is, oh, the, okay. uh, yeah. which is the sort of, I, I want to say it cost me this much five pounds it's really rare it's really Really rare rare. so i'm like i'm not i'm not flogging this even though i don't like the film i'm keeping this well there is isn't there a rights issue in england with them because they're produced by isn't 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 the second one produced by paramount but it's universal no it's both both of them (sighs) are produced by dimension films dimension yes uh dimension plus miramax or no no the first one has paramount on it yeah yeah i thought so yeah they they own the, the rights to it so but in, especially in the US, in the UK anyway. But I know there's an issue that is an after. It's dimensions in Paramount, yes. Yeah. Told you. So Universal got full call to do it then. I think so, yeah. <coughs> Those ones, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so so it, it, interesting in terms of like the theories of of how this sort of translates into Laurie's story. Like the, the director's cut kind of just puts it to bed almost, no? Like, isn't it just like, yeah, that's. Um, it's like okay, well, it's like it, it's a it's a bit sort of more on the nose with this, right? Do you know how desperate these producers are? I read that he had said to um, the the son of um, well, like a card, "I'm done with this after this. Mm-hmm. I will kill the characters off if you allow me." And he said, "Do it." And at the end of the film, he kills Michael, he kills Laura, and the producers were like with with. The fact that they wanted to make Halloween 3D in, I think, 2010, 2011, when that phase was coming, that they were so desperate that they were going to get the, the storyline of Laurie becoming the new Michael. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how desperate these people were, even though... Even the theatrical cut also kind of infers that as well, with, with the, the shots. Yeah, they couldn't, of, they couldn't, he, that's why he signed on. He said, I, I will kill They're the in the longest room in the world. Right? Yeah. He literally said, like, I, I will kill these characters off if, I, if I'm doing it. And they said, do it. Your vision, which I think is actually a backhanded compliment. If you made a film for the studio and they say, right, it, 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 you know, let, let's give you some more freedom, why didn't you just do that the first time around? Like, it's, it's just this film is like an after, it's like a, 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 like, it's a direct inspiration because of its predecessor, the uh, yin and yang, like Nick, like Nick said. You do not get this without its, without its predecessor. But you also, you don't really get the predecessor without this. It's so strange. Like they have such a symbiotic relationship, but they don't meld whatsoever. Although That's I would right. love to, I would love to see what what the uh, original, not original, the 2007 Halloween would have looked like without um, 
anyone sort of meddling with this. Like, like I want to see the pure zombie on, on display, and I want to see how this plays out. Like, just out of curiosity. I know he's not like my favorite director, and like I know Carson probably if he listens to the rest of the show, he's like, "Fucking, what are you talking about?" But yeah, I I kind of feel like this film well, this film doesn't didn't deserve the the meddling that it got. I think because he, he hired he Rob Zombie hired. because because of, of what what he's doing, right? He was hired. <clears throat> And he said in the press that he was going to change the Halloween theme tune and he was also going to change the mask. And people are like... He did change the tune. Yes, but not, not to a complete standard that he'd threatened to do it. And then when the film Lord <laughs> comes out, they're both intact. I think his idea was to do something very different. And I think the fact that if he would have had a Jason Blum, then I think what you're talking about is where it would have been exceptional, where he would have the mm-hmm. restraint, but also the fact that he would have limited money to do what he could do, very much like the sequel. I think Jason Jason Blue would have would have understood from his previous prior body of work what he's hiring, what kind of energy, and then he would have probably just given him, like you, like you don't hire Jordan Peele and then say, like cut down the racial shit. Like what? <laughs> it's just like yeah. no. <laughs> like let him do let him do this do his thing. He's gonna sing. Come on. <laughs> Can I ask you a question then? Yeah. If this was made now, the first film, with with mm-hmm. in, in this Blumhouse era. Instead of the 2018. So instead of so, David you know, Gordon Green. There, who had made 31 Lords of Salem. What do you think? Um, I don't think this belongs in this era. Agreed. I think this is a bygone, this, isn't it? It's this the time this 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 came on the back of like the Eli Roth hostel era of post saw post hostel sort of like people were more attuned to that kind of shit and then now 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 the times are different I think like th- th- I think this whole thing almost ended with Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead remake I want to say mm-hmm. this would be the sort of tail end of this where people found it acceptable and I think this. This this is now the sort of the B movie of, of our time. Like this is something that would go straight to Netflix and it would be like <clears throat> may, maybe it would have this cult following of like have you if, if this was kind of done um without the sort of meddling sort of situation, if this was really extreme, this would maybe gain the sort of cult following of like, have you seen this? This is really fucking rad, right? And then this would be like the squid game of of, of our time, right? Like this oh, this some, something that kind of comes through the <laughs> word of mouth. I'll say this much, right? <clears throat> but not for this money. Not, not, not for this money, though. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that this era of film finishes and the superhero Marvel MCU begins. Mm-hmm. I think they're both a very similar Agreed. entity where the genre pieces they fluctuate. I think you've got the gangsters of the '30s, spaghetti westerns of the '60s. Then you get the gangsters of the of the, of the '90s again. And then you, you again. We've got the superhero, superhero era. I think you well, had the. There's uh, the um the if the the cyclicity of this is like you have your gangsters, you have your westerns. Now you have your horror. gangsters in the nineties, and the super and then superhero films of our time are basically westerns of the forties. Like that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, it it is a shame that we don't get these anymore. And I think when you do, like the, like the rental comes out with the Dave Franco. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of that. I think it. I think that has the embodiment of a Friday the 13th film that doesn't mm-hmm. have that title um, is a throwback. I think it's a really good throwback. 
I don't think you can make this now because of, of, of its connotations. And I think that they've did a track from that in the David Gordon Green, excuse me, the David Gordon Green entity. And they, they, they highlight other things that this film does perfectly well. But it's just very interesting how, and again, to go back to it. Uh, by the way, when was House of the Devil released? Two thousand and nine, I think. Yeah, same era, like same. same like, th- this is same sort of energy of like post nineteen seventies revival. Well, do you remember um, <coughs> Jennifer Lawrence, that house on the left? The oh, the room. house at the end of the street. Yeah, well, that that was that was <laughs> shot two or three years before that originally well, came but, out. Um, yeah, they couldn't I mean, find an audience for it. Yeah, and then it, and I think it, it was. I, I think it may have been cut down, as in like edited, pared down. Oh God, I. Oh God, I. Yeah. Uh, because it was very tame, but then in the same era as like this, like you have House of Wax remake, which was which, which is interesting. That's get that's gets gets a reappraisal as well. It does, and also try and get it, get this on Blu-ray these days. Fucking hell, this is rare. Um, but you have like okay, well you mentioned like the um, uh, the Texas Chainsaw um, remake from two thousand three three. Well, that was that was same energy, like like basically just like take this, put put some, put a gritty gritty filter on this, and then let's let's just shock people with the violence because this is what people were after, just to get get be shocked, right? Yeah, but, it's the French extremity movement basically just coming into the US in a very thin way. You get hostile as well, so yeah. focusing more on violence <clears throat> and gore. Well, French extremity not really movement match in terms of themes. Didn't French extremity movement kind of just happen as almost as a well? A, a bit later, like when was the Martyrs? Sort of, was it no, Ma- Martyrs is towards the so, tail towards end the of end that. of it. Or, okay. 2008. Yeah, we're starting with like Trouble Every Day and other movies from the early what? 2000s. High yeah, tension. So, yeah, so that's the same era, basically. That's basically mm-hmm. like the, the ideas of um, Giallo seeping into American cinema of the 70s, uh, when Dario Argento and Bava were, ba- were were basically just puppet mastering De Palma and all the all the others, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then how how we got slashers in the in, in in the first place is basically because of like a bay of blood and like you know uh, and all, the, all and and like all sorts of like Dario Argento films from the early seventies. But yeah, like but I, I would say like to your point on like the th- thematic conversation, like when you see now na- na- now this film wouldn't be, th- even this one doesn't belong in here because now the conversation about the themes of the films are a bit well. I don't want to say more a bit smarter, but a bit more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you have these conversations about, say, PTSD or depression or um, I don't know, grief uh, or uh, like politics of our time. They're distinctly um, like you, you think about like Jordan Peele's films, like Us or Get Out or like Candyman from this year or things like this, where you see that the politics are front and center, or or like conversation that's not in the narrative is front and center of the film. So you know that you're watching the new Candyman. You're not watching a new Candyman. And on top of that, you get a conversation about racial politics of our time. You're getting the conversation first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, it would have been almost incidental. Like you could, you mm-hmm. could, you could convince yourself. I agree, that you, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Like you watch um, The Hills Have Eyes or uh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw. Like you could say, like, I don't, or like Dawn of the Dead. I don't believe for, for a second that Romero or Hooper or, or, or all these guys, Craven, they would have made, made these films consciously. It's like, let's, de- let's deconstruct American family or like, let's just make a film about the fucking conservatives of the South. I don't think they did that. I agree about the Dawn of the Dead thing. I've always found that strange where, like, I can understand the Night of the Living Dead. I can understand because that's <coughs> quite a, a quite clear depiction of black on white 
I think it. But still, ask Romero this, and he would say, "I don't know." We no, it's just, just it's I mean, just happened. Yeah, the best actor. He was the best actor. <laughs> yeah, and again, this it's it's good when horror grows into something. Again, we we're talking about that this Halloween too. Like, we live in a society now where that oh. horror. You you we even we live in a society yeah. again. Like, take a shot. No, no, like, but um, there are there are very few properties that grow into something <laughs> from nothing, and I think. The, the the Night of the Living. I'm not trying to compare them. I'm just, uh, but I'm just trying to give them context. Where Night of the Living Dead in, in 60s, um, you know, the, the era of the civil rights movement grows into a in, into an indictment of the issues about race and, and identity. Yes. Um, and and again, that's 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 partly at fault of our society itself but, because but we it, can have those conversations. But yeah, the, the thing with this film as well is that. It grows into something about a comment, and it's not really a factor of the film's purpose to do that. It's the surrounding body that lets that grow, and and sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. Sometimes things are just made um, comments and stuff like that b- beforehand, and they brood into something special. Um, I think that's the, that's one of these films where it's a very special film in that it has it has added context with age, and I think it's an interesting film about maturity as well because. I think I was too young to realise what he's trying to say here. And just to move on about the, the comments on, on depiction of trauma and grief, <coughs> the one thing this film does extremely well that no one give, gave it credit for and still doesn't is its comment on, on, on the social commentary on, on, on television. Oh, just about and, to move and, into this. Yeah, and, and, and people <laughs> like the, the age of Dr. Phil, Jeremy Kyle in the UK, where people want to sort of lambast these not lambast but people who exploit um ridicule the sensationalist media sensationalist <laughs> monetize tragedy but it, well, it's it's in there from the very beginning because it starts with like um loomis basically making a career on the back of the book he's he's written yeah. right but to your point beforehand just before we move on i just wanted to yeah, kind of touch course. on this quickly um i but like my theory on how things certain uh, let's just say in the 60s and the 70s like how these like social commentaries kind of just make their way into the films is more likely because artists are usually people who express themselves in a way that it's like I have I have to make a film or I have to I don't know write a book or, or I don't know paint a painting right people are a bit more so more sensitive towards their outside world so they mm-hmm. tend to funnel certain things even unknowingly so you'll you'll be like Romero in the 60s will be surrounded in America uh, by the sort of conversation about the civil rights movement and it will just naturally make its way without him knowing into writing a script. He would just say he's the best actor just unknowingly even though even though it makes sense for a whole variety of reasons. Like same goes for like the 70s in Texas Chainsaw. And so, but so in that spirit I think I don't think Rob Zombie made this, these choices about trauma consciously. I think what what sort of but the but the conversation on media as is the sort of idea of because this was like the the post two thousand one sort of post nine eleven situation where media has just become a machine on its own and also well it's always been like that but in a way he's kind of homaging like natural born killers in a way which is a very strange companion companion piece too <laughs> yeah. and, and I think a little bit of an inspiration for his own work as well in terms of how, what kind of energy it has. It's, but I think, yeah, so I don't know what you're, but you're, let's just throw it, up, throw it on, onto the panel about sort of uh, media discussion. Where, where do you guys stand on this? Well, just, just before that, it's so interesting <clears> you, bring, <throat> you bring it up because, like, 
when you look at 31, there's definitely a conscious conversation there about class hmm. structure in America. And then when yep. it's interesting, you bring Oliver Stone into it because Oliver Stone was like meant to make the first Halloween in, in 2007. He was like attached to that for a long time. Oh, Jesus. I cannot in, actually in 2007. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then he made the World Trade Center film instead. Which was released the same year, uh, the Hold year before. On. No, when was it? Was before that? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. Yeah, because yeah, that was the same year as United ninety three, right? No, that's uh, a year after. I think it came out before. After? Or after? United United ninety three is two thousand seven. Two thousand six. Sorry. And then uh, the World Trade Center two thousand six. Yeah. World Trade. Yeah, both. Well, World Trade Center and United ninety three came out the same year. Oh, I thought it was two thousand seven. Yeah, because it it was kind of like everyone wanted to make films. Um, basically, the artists were just just screaming internally about like I I really want to express myself and I can't because like this would this would be sort of like too early, and then yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just five years have passed and then just all this all stuff started coming out. So you could actually all, also argue that this is also part of the sort of pent up frustration about like trying to talk about how we are manipulated by by, by certain forces that are beyond our control. Yeah, the, the only reason why I bring the Stone thing up is because that's how desperate they were. But um, again, because because I, I brought it up to begin with uh, about the, the conversation on the media personality, I think I think the, the the there are there are strains of it in the first film in, in, in 07, um, but it's very much played on on the nose here, and I think that's partly down to Rob Zombie and his screenplay, but it's also partly down to Malcolm McDowell, who said I would only return if I could do something strange, and I think. Something boy, strange, did he? yeah. Something strange <laughs> blossomed into something like quite powerful. I mean, the, the, I always found that that when he when he gets on the chat show, but, but weirdo like Yankovic, I was like, this is just silly now. Like, I don't understand that. But it's a really interesting comment to have. Like, I, I find it really interesting. There's a, there's a program in in, um, in England called Question Time and stuff like that, and you have like political figures on, and they get some celebrities on. Like, you know, it's interesting. Like. <laughs> This is going to be. Like, no, you you... Don't have, this is not David Dimbleby. This is some fucking guy in Weird Al. <laughs> yeah, but, but my, my point of the matter is that when you're talking about social austerity and, mm-hmm. and 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 world hunger and stuff like that, and you have um, polit- uh, politicians on on the stage who should be held accountable, both sides of the of the aisle, red or blue. The fact that there are kids going hungry in our in our in our in our, um, in our, in our world, and then you, you've got like a comedian there, and I'm just like. This is the last leg. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I mean, yeah. Like eight out of ten cats. I'm just, I'm just sat there. I'm thinking, like, there are serious issues here, and as consciously or not, we're downplaying that with having someone who makes like. And don't me. I think comedy's like political. Don't get me wrong. I I think very clearly, but um, there's that that is that is a manifestation of our world. Like that's that's the world we live in, where. We just have to get the, the TV rotor and you have to get but, the numbers. So you have to diversify in that fact. So I'm not talking about um, race. I'm talking about you have to diversify your audience in the fact that Dapper Laughs brings in the ages of what 14 to 21. So if he's on question time, um, he brings in a certain demographic that can, that, can, that can view in. Like it's not a conscious decision about those people who are going to watch that and think my little brother, my little sister going to school and, and doesn't have any food. Like, and I think that how Rob Zombie does it is not, again, not as in depth of that, but it's a it's a, it's a, a very strong and impassioned conversation about like, the likes of Doctor Phil, like, 
you know, Jeremy Kyle is a very similar character. Like he, 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 he gets people that we would call the, the working class or people who, who don't work, who, who maybe want to not purposely work or can't because disability. He pays them £250 a person to get on stage and ridicules them for 30 minutes. He's not on air anymore because one of the people who were meant to be in his care killed themselves. And I think when, once you put that in, in perspective and you have these people who are like overlords of public opinion, I think it's a really interesting conversation to have because that's another thing that's taking massive precedent now. Like, look at the Daniel Bregoli girl, the Catch Me Outside. Like, we live in an era where you can go on television now and you can get ridiculed and you can, you can be a star. And we were all, when I was growing up, well, when I was growing up, when I was younger, you were always told to be the best that you could be and that people who worked hard for something. And it's, a, it's, a, it's used now, but in a different rhetoric by, by the by uh, it's almost political as if you will um but you know to get to get to do well in life you have to you have to you have to achieve something and now it seems that again it's an detriment of hollywood as well that you fall upwards that you can go on live television you can be made a fool out of and you can prosper by that and i think that's an issue within our society that reflects very poorly and i think it's something that that has crafted um a divide if you will where the the, the working class are those people who have no other option but to do that or try to do that, whereas the upper class, the, the, the higher esteemed, look down on that, um, but are the ones, the ones who are watching making fun of it but don't like it when those people succeed. And I think it's an interesting that when people look down, like, again, it's like he can, again, going back to the film, Loomis can write a book about Michael Myers and he can name certain secrets in that book and not give a shit about the actual ramifications of reality where that is, is a woman going through her own grief. And then and having he's also death. confronted by um, the father of one girl. Yes, which, which we see about like, you know, Alex Jones and the, the, the tragedy of um, Sandy Hook with the parents, he said it was a conspiracy. And the parents were like, like are suing him in court now. And that's like factually, can't, can't touch see, me on that. This is an interesting conversation that the film actually, well, you, want, you might actually, I think you mentioned this before, like this film is a little bit too early for its time, but also, well, thanks to its aesthetic, it's too late for its time. So it's mm-hmm. about, so it's a bit doomed both ways. Yeah. Because yeah. now you, you, we're living in an era where you you can't trust, like, like say mainstream media, to, because everything's research, every, every, well, everything's not research, but everything's kind of designed to kind of fit a certain narrative editorial line. And then everything's kind of in bite-sized portions, so you never get into the nuance or detail of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you almost now have to rely on like comedy panel shows where people can dish it out in longer sort of bits of um, ex- you know, like they can they can actually talk about these things for, for a longer time, or or if you, you can you have to actually even like look into comedians doing their specials or. Uh, like talk about their stuff on podcasts to actually get like honest political opinions exactly don't you think it's interesting that that i mean again Mm. i don't want to politicalize this i'm not trying to suggest that i have political leanings here but that's a a greater reason why the success of joe rogan exists because he gets people on and he can have a conversation with them right or wrong disagree or agree he he says this himself yeah which is not an issue the problem is even to that extent because it's built such an audience and you say certain things on there, people take it for the gospel. So, so that you're always going to struggle with bite-sized long form. If you have an, if you have a, an intertwined relationship with, with the subject or, a, or, a, or an interview or an interviewee, 
you you people do sort of politicalize that or or personalize but those things. We 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 used to have this sort of in in media where you'd have a um like there would be the news and there would be like a one hour show where there would be a guy and an and doing an interview with someone and they would ask questions and they would put them in the in in the spotlight they would put them in their place right. This I always no let them here in Italy a lot. Um, yeah, but then now, now nowadays it's kind of like five minutes, and, and the guy says, "We'll have to leave it there. We have to go to weather, right?" And then mm-hmm. no, I want to hear what this guy has to say. I want to hear, or, or more, 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 more. I want to hear you ask difficult questions, right? Which is where the long form, it, which is basically now, like this is how this sort of film also makes this commentary. I, I think because we are told we are basically being patronized by sort of media right because we're told like no no people people wouldn't want to listen listen to a long form conversation because people don't have the attention span yes they do people sit through three and a half hour long uh, episodes of joe rogan podcast by the fucking millions right or like my or, or they will listen to mark Maron and like um talk to talk to people for an hour and a half like do people do this so so I think this this film also makes this sort of well not imp- not not necessarily in uh, intrinsically, but it kind of just adds to the sort of conversation about how media is uh, patronizing towards everything, how is how it's exploitative mm-hmm. first and foremost. Like this is a film, this is an exploitation film about exploitation. Like to bring to bring it back to the to the film, actually, yeah. It's meta, but it's not consciously so. I don't think it's a factor that they set out to do that, which I think I is no, this film no, yes, in, in, a, in a nutshell anyway. It's, it's a film that retroactively adds a lot more depth to it than, than initially probably states. But just, just to, to get off that topic as well, like because I, I brought it up at the beginning, um, the fact that he, he employed the 185, what you said, Nick, is is genuinely like where he is at home as well. I, I think he's used 239. Did he use it on The Lords of Salem? I think he used, he used it on one of his later films, but he's he's prone to use 185.1 and what that does is it blows the image up it, it claustro it, it's claustrophobic um it works wonders in these type of films and just from the composition of frame you can tell he's got it like he knows where the, the face is going to be so everything looks looks like really 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 tight but it feels that you can you can't escape and when you get to those really tight images and you get personalized just like with, with when Annie's on the floor bleeding to death and and and, and uh, Laurie's over and they're, they're cradling each other. And, like there's an intimacy there for, for, that works on its tension and also for its tenderness. When you watch the the the, the pre- predecessor and you get into the sort of sequence where she's hiding in in the, in the house in the roots of it all, the two thirty nine point one when it when it when it takes us out, like you are literally taken out of the film and in, in, in a more you know an on the nose sense of it. It's a very mm-hmm. strange decision why why he would be employed that. I think this is um, a mandated thing by the studio, I and mean, we you touched on this before, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but the but, fact that, the fact also that he he, he <clears> told them he wouldn't shoot on thirty five millimeter. Oh, that's what I wanted to kind of get. He, into. he wanted he shot it on sixteen millimeter. Yep. I I got to I, I I've seen this on what is essentially DVD uh, quality, um, and it looked very grainy to me. I would have to watch it again on Blu-ray. So maybe I will. I will probably, um, uh, well, the second one I watched it on Amazon yeah. Prime. Uh, well, I, I I bought it on Amazon, so it is grainy, and it is. To me, this is also uh, when you, you talk about aspect ratio being being sort of. I think yes, of course. There's also another a- aspect of if you move from a 35 millimeter camera to a 60 millimeter. Like there is there is an aspect of just physical size of what you're handling as well. Mm-hmm. Like the camera is smaller, so and then you can see that there are these like. 
let's just go to the hospital chase scene and like the, you can hide the camera in with, with or even as a cameraman operator like you can hide with this in a corner of the frame like in a corner of the room and then just everything becomes more personal up close yeah. and personal right so you can like physical do, accessibility isn't there yeah, you can. I suppose you you can accomplish similar things with a thirty five millimeter camera if if you know what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you know, uh, or if you know what you're doing, as in like if you know what you're asking your camera operator, um, that's doable, right? Say so like people like Paul Greengrass can get up close and personal with you with a thirty five millimeter camera and with a massive fucking just mag on the on top, and then you won't feel the difference. But he knows what he's doing. He knows what the cam- camera is capable of, and that's the sort of that's the sort of genius of this guy, right? This this guy is an indie director. He's a guerrilla filmmaker. He's he's more in line with like the Toby Hoopers and Werner Herzogs of, of of his time that he's just picking up the camera and shooting because he feels he needs to shoot. So he doesn't think about these things. And then all of a sudden you, you hand him like a massive beast. And it's like, how am I supposed to do what I want to do this way? Like it feels unnatural, right? And it's fascinating how he manages to balance not only the, the rawness of the 16 millimeter format, but also the, the, the beauty of it. Because so much of the scene keeps going back and forth between those handheld intense shots during the more violent moments to these beautiful, beautiful poetic sequences, very lyrical, very surreal, with this, like using these massive headlights to create those stark shadows in the night. Um, it's wonderful. And it's something that was very much missing from the first film. Um, much care for the cinematography. And it works so beautiful. All those dream sequences. If there's any, if there's any issue with the 60 millimeter, and again, this is like, this will probably be on my back end of the, this conversation, but um, I just don't think he utilizes color. And I, I don't think you can do because it's such a grainy and gritty image. Like it lo- looks like it's processed with coffee almost. But there's like, there's a sequence where, again, like when Daniel Roebuck said with the, with the green Frankenstein, where you just get an image of it. But I, I, I think when you see the promotional material, you you have like this gritty white face that's 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 starting to decompose with a mask, which is again we should talk about a bit later as well. Um, that's Leatherface for you. Yeah, but the, the pumpkins <clears throat> don't pop on all on the promotional material. They do, but the Halloween here, there's no sort of like fire burning idea, like. He very much uses shades, and I think that's that's a detriment, not a detriment. Sorry, I think it's more sort of an elevation of mood, and I think it broods a lot better. Specifically, how he uses the white as well here. I think I think how he uses his, his shades of black and grey are very interesting. But how he gets the light when when Michael is first introduced in the in the shed, and there's a, a blinding white light behind, behind Cherry Moon Zombie's character, his, his mother, um, and it bursts through. It's very interesting how he does it, almost angelic, but it's never like way too much like on the nose where it looks ridiculous. I think it's really well balanced. And again, I think this film is is, is going to get very poor feedback in the, in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of colour, but it does use shade really, really well for a director who's not particularly a visionary. And I don't say that as a backhanded compliment. Hmm. Um, but but I, I think, again, not to, not to repeat myself here, but... Um, Really, really impressed with uh, Danielle Harris's performance again. I think she's a really talented actress, and I think she um, feeds. Scott she has fucking hell. Yeah, I, I, again, <laughs> I, I, very, very important that those are, those are shown on screen as well. Um, and I think she does a really wonderful job of feeding into um, 
scouts Laurie Stroder's um, performance um, and then they go back. I would wish that they had a bit more than that. I think they do have two or three um, integral sequences, one when they order the pizza and the two when they, they, they have that argument and the third is that when, when, she, when she finds Anna. I think they're, they're really, really wonderful and brooding... Um, um, also, Brad Dourif, you have to kind of mention him here. Yeah, like he does, the, he does the, the family yeah. dynamic in here is just on different level, almost in comparison. Yeah, they all, they all feel, it all feels organic as well, and, it, and it's a surprise because <laughs> you don't. It's not. It's not. I mean, he tried to do the family in the first film, and I don't think that's organic. I mean, per, consciously so, I suppose. But um, well, that family was supposed to be dysfunctional. Like right? this is supposed no, no, to be a functioning granted, family, it, right? But nothing feels like a family. They just feel <laughs> four different people who are in there arguing with each other. Nothing feels. Family. Yeah. Again, you can you can you can probably say that, that that's more conscious in the film, but here I think they play off each other specifically with Dan, uh, Brad Dourif as well. Don't get me wrong, but um, the one thing that really annoys me—it's going to be in my end um, and comment—is that they literally do the exact same thing with Daniel Harris as they did in the first film. They they, they, they strip her down quite literally, and then she uses a rag doll and she gets beat, stabbed. Um, just, just, just uh, uh, horrific um, injuries, um, and then he's just left like with a fatal wound. And I was, just, I just thought to myself like, there's, there's, I understand that like, why, why perhaps they would need that to move the, the plot along, and and, and I think it, it gives a, a bit of gravitas to to Laurie's character that she's now lost everything. But how he ends on an on a consciously anticlimactic manner, I think he gets lost in 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 the in the in the themes, as well as I feel like it's so repetitive, there's nothing else they could have done. I think it's a very angry film, and I think it feeds into the uh, father's character a bit, but again, because it's so anticlimactic at the ending, it just doesn't feel like it's it's bled out a lot, no pun intended. Um, but I would have expected and have hoped that character would have had a very different uh, arc in this film, considering its ending, but I think everything else is pretty good here. I also, I think... I think the, the the I think it's a stout, uh, scout Taylor Cop is it Copton or something like that. Com- is it Compton? Yeah, right? I think she's really good in this film. I think she's really really good. It is interesting that like when she has her three friends at the the library, not the library, at the um, bookshop. Oh, the bookshop, yeah. That's Rob Zombie. That's Rob. That that's Rob, that's exactly like they're wearing yeah. the t-shirts. Like you said, like they, they look. She she's starting to look like him. She needs a goatee. It's very yep. much like. She's quite clearly from him. Yeah, but I mean... That, Ass crack hanging out. Like, it's all, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and it, again, it's interesting. They, they feel like the that she's trying to get on with the, uh, with the life. It's just... It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, I like the... Uh, um, I mean, I don't like them, but I think it's interesting that they have the, the therapist sequences where she's she's blossoming and then she's 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 internalizing the externalizing it it's a really good depiction of um of anxieties and and and, and grief uh just that comment on, on trauma but it's interesting like when again like we talk about the jamie curtis thing where these films are about trauma i think that when you look at this and you look at the 2018 one not to jump ahead if anyone wants to say anything please cut back but um i think that like when you when you watch because I watched I just said before this this we started recording that I watched uh, Halloween Halloween Kills back to back the new ones and um, I doesn't really feel that films about trauma it just feels like it's about grief trauma is a psychological and a physical thing where um, the grief is the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis can't get her anger or her um, revenge on someone who physically 
and uh, harmed her and destroyed aspects of her life where this film with Laura is about the trauma of she she knows that this person is dead but she can't move on and it's not necessarily a conversation about Michael it's a conversation of Laurie Strode deals with that um, and I think it's probably one of the best depictions of Laurie Strode in this film it's just a shame that we didn't get this in the original uh, John Carpenter vision because if this was the sequel set a few years afterwards and it's about I mean it's, it's, it's too far ahead of its time I don't think John Carpenter is capable of doing that as well no no disrespect to him but this is the depiction of uh, how I think in my personal opinion anyway I think it's a wonderful depiction of how it's done that it's a really good conversation not to go back but it's just interesting how you know a decade goes by and they just cannot get that character right it's what I think I can't remember who said about Laurie Strode or you Jacob or or Carson, but they've just failed consistently to, to have that conversation to really explore a central character, which yep. is interesting because it, it leaves who who is able to write Laurie Strode. Then is does Carmen know who she is? Does Jamie Lee Curtis know who she is? Does does who? Because mm-hmm. you, you, this is such an interesting conversation about that. We're, we're sort of seeing it again in these new versions, but they don't have it. They don't have those conversations. And to my to my um, well, she was supposed to be a. The idea of actually, it, it, it is fundamentally a mistake to tie her with familiar bonds to uh, Michael, right? This agreed. Thing, Carpenter actually admitted himself that he agreed to this because it was just like it kind of, because he, he said there was no more story to be told. Mm-hmm. And then they said, oh, yeah, if we do this, then we can just make it, we can, we can rationalize bringing these characters back. And then on some level, you can also say that, well, by virtue of just bringing the same characters back into a horror horror slasher film setting, you could actually make a case that most slashers are about trauma, right? To some well, extent. Well, they are. Scream. Yeah, quite but, literally. Quite literally. And then uh, the, I know Max is going to just like blow a gasket in here. like, <laughs> But, you know, like Halloween kills. Halloween kills is almost like about like this. Oh, yeah, it's about trauma. But it's like, yeah, it's because there's physical trauma on the screen, right? That's all... Like it doesn't really get much much further to me at least, but yeah. <laughs> but Halloween Kills doesn't really explore trauma. No, it doesn't. No, that but, much. I don't. Um, I, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the movie, like the, the political subtext with the mom mentality that was kind of really badly done. Mm-hmm. But I really fucking liked about this movie is that is is how Michael Myers is you know purely evil and. He makes even like Tommy Doyle become more evil than Myers himself. I, mean, I know that Halloween makes sense, kills, right? Yes, okay. Ellen kills. Okay, okay. Um, and it's not really about trauma. Like I would say, Halloween Two is the best depiction of trauma in the entire franchise, compared to Halloween Kills, which is more about. I mean, it's called Halloween Kills. There's just a bunch of kills, and what I really liked about this movie was I just turned my brain off and I started enjoying mm-hmm. the shit out of every single kill that went down in it. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. Why are people hating this? And then I started reading reviews. I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter. And I spent like 2,000 words on this. I'm like, holy shit. Do you know what's really interesting <laughs> about what, what you say there, Max, is that I feel that Halloween Kills is very much in the same vein of what we're talking about here. It's it's a it's not not like a Last Jedi, not like the Star Wars well, thing. Where it's like it's I like said, a, it's, a mi- said, it's a middle chapter of a trilogy, which is I, 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 have, said, I, I, I right? have said something about about Halloween Kills. Is that 
if the 2018 version of Halloween was considered more as the Force Awakens um, of the Halloween saga, meaning that it brought back old characters from the first movie and it kind of reutilized the same tropes, the same score, the same uh, emotional beats as in the first movie to kind of reintroduce audiences to what made John Carpenter's Halloween so good, then I would, I would affirm that Halloween Kills is pretty much the last Jedi because it completely just subverts all expectations that people had about the sequel in a good or bad way. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that, but I think it goes a bit further as well. Where I think when you have the, when you, I think in, in the terms of convention, um, I think that the Halloween 2018 is quite simplistic and it plays yeah. more to the, I think in my opinion, I think it's like 60 avant-garde, 40 Halloween, whereas like, 60% of it's new wave horror, what we're seeing now, and then 40, what 40% of it is like throwback Halloween. And I think the Halloween Kills is is like a, a comment on that and the fact that they go 90% um, Halloween and they go yeah. 10% new wave. And it's interesting when we put it in perspective, it's almost the same thing that's happened with the Rob Zombie things as well, but in terms of narrative structure in, in, these, in these Rob Zombie films where the convention narrative is so tight in the first 2007 one whereas in 09 he's allowed to just do what he wants it'd be very interesting to see in halloween ends which way they go now because well, zombie wasn't yeah because zombie wasn't allowed to to i mean i don't think he was allowed i don't even what fucking wanted to touch it but they have an option now whether to blend them both together which i would have thought would have been the idea or pick one or the other um and from the <laughs> from the, the the commercial success of of, of one of them uh, and, well, making 50 million in cinemas yeah. and debuting the new one right yeah debu- debuting on on uh, peacock on and, and torrenting aside um is quite a frightening thing to think about of how good that that's done so i'm still skeptical i know things about those two films that are slightly worrying um you can go listen to the club because i'm not going to repeat them here but um there are issues uh, behind the scenes with those films i don't think we'll see the third one for quite a while um it's supposed to come out next year but it's not yeah, it hasn't it, started they haven't, even, they haven't even written yeah. it yet properly um the fact well, that they were, well, i, mean, I don't think they've written the second one <clears throat> so, well, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very <laughs> worried about that. about halloween ends when david started talking about the fact that it was going to be set in during the covid19 pandemic or something like that it's like I, Especially Everybody's on lockdown. About, not Michael talking. Myers doesn't kill yeah. people during COVID because he has to be on lockdown too. Like, I don't know, but it's just, I mean, it I, feels I, dumb. I, I tweeted about this and you can read between the lines here. If a, if a, if a film production company logs books and schedules two back-to-back films and halfway through production, they decide not to do that, release the second one, release the second one, it's own editor and pause the third one. And this is before COVID. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. A good sign. Well, the fact that they've come out and they've, they've said that the Halloween Kills was too intense as a production, and then you watch it and realize one of them's chained to a bed for fucking for, for half the production. It's mostly well, all. It's mostly all consciously like well, quite contextually shot within a certain um, back lot. There's not not there's not much here to do with external shooting programs or anything like that. I think there's a massive. Well, I know that I know there is, but there's, there's massive issues behind closed doors. I mean, I'm not. I'm not on the inside on this, but I would say like my bet is that um, there is a bet going on in there between the f- warring factions in the filmmaking sort of branch of this, as in like maybe director writers against producers who insisted on certain things, and then 
seeing if it financially makes sense, that means one of these parties will were right, right? Mm-hmm. Look again between the lines. If you're I feel look, like Gordon Green didn't want this film to look like that. Well, I I, I just think that again I, I know I know some certain things, and, and you, you can devise an opinion on, on others. But but the fact of the matter is that the the they were they booked to do back to back and decided not to do that infers one thing, one thing only that this did not go to plan, and they released this not knowing of what direction to go into, and this would go out to the world and be the feelers. And the fact that this has come back with a 50 million, again, this is going into something else yet, yeah, but the fact that this goes into 50 million opening debut weekend for an R-rated horror, would if, and we're talking about producers all the way throughout this programme and about how poor they are, how fucking stupid they can be, is that they will see that with green envy. and there will be validation think, for them. Exactly, <clears throat> that's the word validation. And I think behind closed doors, there's definitely an issue of the fact that if you're coming out and saying, well, we're going to, we're teasing a time jump for four years and then setting with COVID would infer to me personally that they have absolutely no idea A, yeah. what they're doing and B, what the audience want. And this is the same thing that's happened at Warner Brothers mm-hmm. with the MonsterVerse is that they've got to a point where they have no idea what the audience wants. The last one. no idea something. what direction. And they've just they have they have to leave it for a point, and I think this this franchise is in deep shit. Well, Go- David Gordon Green now. I mean, uh, he's doing to, the Walt to, Disney movie now. Oh, he's, he's making do the, the, he's doing oh, the, oh, the Exorcist trilogy. He's, he's making, yeah, well, he's making Oof. three. Well, he's making three Exorcist oh, films. God, <laughs> he's only just written the two of them. But hold Again. on, see about this. My bet would be that David Gordon Green's not going to be attached to the third one because now he probably wanted the film. I mean, this is how I see it because I, based on how the previous one looked and well, now how this spoke, one looks. We've spoken about this behind closed doors as well. Yeah. yeah. So I, I feel that this is something that he's going to de- dis- disengage himself from the Halloween franchise. He's going to start making his Exorcist or whatever from films that he's going to make. And they're, hi- they're going to hire someone else to, to follow with the vision that clearly now has been validated. Anyway, on coming back to Halloween 2, one thing I wanted to ask, because we've touched on this to some extent, we've touched on the media and everything, I want to kind of just get into the, lin- the, the lynch thing, as in like the sort of, mm-hmm. there's the narrative, and there's the woman with a horse, there's his vision as a kid, and there's there's a bunch of dream sequences, and then there's the ending, right? What Where do we stand on this? What's going on? Thoughts? It's, it's good stuff, I think my, my brain is shutting down, so the the words are not going to function properly, but I'll do my best. Um, it's it's very obvious. I think the film, I don't know if the theatrical version opens with a quote or anything, but the director's cut opens with like a, an analysis of what a white horse means. It's the pain and trauma and blah, blah, blah. Well, the, th- the theatrical starts with it too. Okay, well, there we go. Um, so it's, it's not like he's trying to hide the meaning of the white horse, especially when you see the mother giving it to him. But I, I don't know, I, I like it because it's, again, it's humanizing it's humanizing Michael without making you sympathize with him because I think it's two very different things. Um, even with the first one, humanizing doesn't necessarily mean to sympathize. I don't think there's meant to be any pity for Michael Myers in these films. Um or do you have to feel sorry for him? But it's no, it, it's making him human, and and it is connecting it. I, as I said earlier, it is connecting it to David Lynch, 
connecting it to the dream realm to fire walk with me and this works and especially with the ending itself um knowing that laurie is meant to die what we're seeing is the final vision and it's literally her in an insane asylum finally being connected with her mother again i think just like the first film it's very poignant it's a very touching way to end the film um you know in death she can find freedom and happiness and joy of sorts she was always meant to be their mother and young michael probably i don't know well, that's well that's on, that's in the director's cut right because she's not she doesn't die yes well yeah there's <laughs> not that in the theatrical cut no no she's set in an insane asylum i think yes and in the, it's, into it's the, this... she she lives in the longest room in the world well it's the same <laughs> shot it's the same shot in the in the director's cut that's that hasn't been changed it's just that she's shot by the police Okay. And then it just fades into the corridor and they're smiling and stuff. But but Zombie himself said that she's supposed to die. All of them are dead at the end. It ends on her smiling and just like, okay, fine, I I think I get it now. Love hurts playing. She's just just incorporated this sort of the curse. It's basically just like tell excuse almost like I don't know. I don't want to say it undermines it, but it kind of excuses Michael Myers as a as a villain. As in, like, okay, it's not him. It's just something that's possessed him because it's now transferred between individuals. It's just very odd. I think this this lynching thing is it's just laser. Like, it's just got to the point where doing it's embodied by film to where anything has anything remotely existential or thematically brooding in a way that is is what David Lynch has, has utilized before. It's automatically Lynchian. I, th- I think that's really well, because strange. it's dreamlike that right that's what he does. I mean Lynch I mean that's I mean dreams. that that is it's like that's so fucking lazy. Like I think that <laughs> there are I think the White Horse and the, the Twin Peaks thing is like a little bit too on the nose. I think there's definitely inspiration there, but I mean, this is a Rob Zombie film, and this is Rob Zombie's interpretation of. But apparently, he just saw a horse on the way on the way to set. He was like, "I want a horse in my film." Yeah, that, that like, was exactly I, I the genesis of this. <laughs> I don't, I don't see incredible. any work ever involved with Lynch in zombies filmography whatsoever. Like, I think that's I, if that if that's a bane of film criticism, that fucking worries me to be honest. And that that's a that's a sentiment that keeps on cropping up everywhere. Like, I'm sure I've described stuff as Lynchian, but it's a direct connotation of such like i think it's a fucking big stretch well everything everything that's very slightly weird in any Mm. sort of piece of media is now being described as lynchian (laughs) it rolls up the tongue uh, better than bunuel-esque you know (laughs) well yeah but i mean this one kind of warrants a comparison with lynch because it ends in a sort of ethereal note i mean it's a slight comparison with Lynch because it does feel plucked straight out of Twin Peaks or Eraserhead, but um, I don't know. But that's that, that's just my interpretation of it. But uh, I really I, I think the term Lynchian should be used only um, when it really, 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 really warms. Yeah. Only for David Lynch's works. I, I just think. Well, like, yes, it, exactly. <laughs> yes. It, it gives it gives weight to a to a a filmmaker in, in this sense of Rob Zombie that is so unlike it that I think people will attribute different associations because it, it feels so unlike uh, that director's aesthetic. Um, yeah. But I think in actual fact, as a it's one of the most, it's, it's, it's probably the most visually stunning film in the Halloween franchise. 
um, yeah, by a mile. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think, I think it's not the, the it's not the best crafter. I, I still think the, the I think the the seventy eight one. Is, yeah, is the best yeah, crafter, but it looks I the think. movie. Every, every shot in this movie in, in this one looks fucking gorgeous. When mm-hmm. Loomis walks out of that that shed, right? There's this big spotlight. The helicopters are in the are flying. There's this big spotlight centering him. It's fucking incredible. It's beautiful. There's one. Like, in the oh, ending, there's one little little nuance in here that I kind of liked because you, you you're kind of in a vision with Laurie, her mother, the young Michael, and there's the big Michael, and everything is in, is in white. But then, for like half a second, you, you see like shades of blue and red, as in like, oh, we're not in a vision anymore because you're like in a like. O- oftentimes, you're in a vision with them, but mm-hmm. now no, we're not in a vision. We're in an actual shed, and there's police outside. And this is kind of what I like about this that you can't possibly figure out whether what's real and what's not. Because it's not, oh, it's not a dream sequence or anything like that. It's just okay. Maybe she's she, is she seeing things? I'm not sure. Like, are these people he, real? What the fuck is 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 Michael real? Is anything real? It's, it's like you kind of start. It, you're unsettled in this way, and I think it's accidental. That's what makes it, it great. Yeah, that, that, that's what makes it great. That would just sounds lynching to me. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think I think okay. There needs to be a moratorium <laughs> on the word lynching. I think any anything anytime a critic wants to use the word lynching, they should be asked to like drink a, 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 a I don't know. A glass, of di- a glass of diarrhea so that, okay, if you really want to use it, you need to be holy shit certain that there's, because there's gravity, right? <laughs> like, so Undivision is Lynchian or oh, any, Lynchian anything too. remotely slightly weird is Lynchian. And it's like, it, well, you know, you have to comp- you can compare it to something else. I don't know. I would just hope that the one thing that I think that it, this could be something extraordinary within the franchise. And I think, I think Halloween 2018 still ups it is I wish the zombie would be braver behind the camera or push himself. While I think this is this is l- less of a control than than its predecessor, I just wish that in the editing department that he could really express a different uniqueness to what he uses. Like, let's use some long shot, let's use some unbroken edits, really get a bit crazy. Like, I, I appreciate that it has to be it has to be swiftly edited, swiftly cut because it has to reinforce that nature of, of Michael Myers being a powerhouse. Uh, and yeah. the violence but i think that there needs to be some sort of pause of brevity here because i think the 2018 one does a really good job of building suspense this isn't the tone that film's going for i appreciate that but i just feel mm. like they, they, i wish there would be a bit more of a risk but the one thing i'm i'm, I'm yeah. going to push back on is that for 90 percent of this film like it, 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 it i can go with it and the, the only one thing that just i think i'm blinded by is that it ends in a shed in the middle of nowhere. Like, really? Like, where's the symmetry there? Like, we're just going to end in a shed in the middle of fuck knows, bum fuck nowhere. I just, to me, like, the, uh, the, what does that craft? It doesn't craft isolation, it doesn't craft mood. It's a really strange decision to do that. And that, to me, is, and I, I, if I read between the lines, is because they pulled funding from the film. If I remember rightly, he says that, that he was taking days off 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 the schedule, so he had to just come up with an idea of how to shoot his ending. I don't think this is his original planned ending, and I think in the screenplay it would be very different if it's even there at all. Well, there is a scene in the film just before the shed, as in that she breaks out of the house, she runs through the whatever forest, like the house is in the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden, I don't care. 
but this is basically to me again like Carson's gonna hate this but this is again homage to Texas Chainsaw because this yeah, is basically yeah, no how doubt. the lady how the lady survives right because she just finds a he a, a car just gets into the back of a pickup truck and just drives away laughing hysterically right um but well she doesn't get to sort of escape she just gets kidnapped again and then she, you have to go s- somewhere from there right so so there's there's that angle to it but then um I don't mind that it's in the shed. As a, I don't care. It is what it is. It, it is it, what it is. It, 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 it has to. It has to kind of come to some kind of a meaningful conclusion. I think just within the parameters of what this film has gone through, it's great. Um, to my well, it's not pushback, but I'd say like I, I think this if, if Rob Zombie was doing things like, well, let's do a longer take. Let's do a wider shot for some reason. Let's not put the camera on the ground like you know, like Craven and the last house on the left, just to just to make a point that this is something that you know, like one of the paper traders could have done. Um, he it, he would draw attention to himself a bit more because this is this would be out of his wheelhouse, right? Well, He's never done is, that. Yeah, and if it didn't work, he'd be fucking prosecuted for it almost. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. I, I I don't I don't think that the ending is is poor. I think it's one of the strongest parts, and I think thematically it works wonders but you can't tell me that's the envision that that was meant to be on paper i think that's him working with a shit deal with a shit card deal i think he does a really good job and again it just goes to show his ingenuity as a filmmaker that he and again these are things that happen in a a blue moon but the fact of the matter is that, that he managed to successfully craft a really meaningful ending with a setting that perhaps wasn't his first choice Mm-hmm. This reaffirms that, that he's a very, very, very talented director who, if able to with with budget, can craft really strong thematically uh, emotive films. But the risk is that he's, he's he's used one certain property that will be ultimately indoctrined in his in in, in well in his. It'd be the last thing that he'd probably ever ever see in his life is that oh he he ruined Halloween. It's just with him now, and I think it was a really strong risk to run. And I think you've got one that's horrific, and you've got one that's very 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 good. Um, one that's and, horrific, one that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, and and I, and I think maybe 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 in, in I think if you can splice them together, you could probably have something very interesting for two and a half hours. Um, I think that would be a really good editing thing where you have a you have a two and a half hour epic of Halloween. Rob Zombie's Halloween and and take bits here and there and and, and really uh, really uh, get into it. I think that's what probably should be have, should have been made. Um, uh, and I think in hindsight probably would have been. But I'm not not to, to do closing statements. But well, we might as well actually transition. I, to I, 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 ju- I just I just think there's 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 an opportunity here to really push people's buttons. And I think he did do so, but I think people took it the wrong way. Where people specifically. Um, fans took took this as an offense more so that he tried and i think successfully but it's it's taken a, a fucking 13 years at least i mean it took me at least eight years to really appreciate where you have to look at something in a in a in a in a, in a, in a long form where this franchise is diminishing returns and the fact that he tried to attempt something new with this film and it's a direct consequence of its predecessor but also works as a conversation against the franchise on a whole really does feed it a new newfound lifespan um the fact that the new ones are poor as well where you just think wow like 
this 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 was someone really trying to do something new and no one was here for it. And I think the fact as well, not to sound like like ownership of it, but I like the fact that no one really likes it as well. I like the fact that I do. I like the fact that it's not very well spoken about. I like the fact that it's not spoken at all. Well, it's sorry, but this is why we're here. <laughs> no, no, granted, <laughs> but I feel like it's a film still finding its feet, and that's a that's that's thirteen years. I think I think it'll be two decades wow. before it really gets it. I think we'll have to see this original trilogy, this this new trilogy. We'll mm-hmm. have to wait a while and how poorly it fucking it forms. Um, I think then we'll get a conversation of like reappraisal of, of Halloween 2. The problem with that is it's interconnected with its predecessor that's dog shit. And uh, you can't separate them, like Nick said. They are unfortunately uh, so meddled together. Um, I think I think it'd be, I think I think it's interesting because Rob Zombie has said that he's he's essentially he he does not consider these canon like in his own opinion like he he disowns these two films which I think is very interesting because there's definitely um look I don't know who owns the rights to these films anymore I think the the rights are reverted back but the actual ownership of Dimension Films I don't know if Miramax still would own these rights because. They don't get uh, reissued on anything. Screen Factory have to do deals with them. I think Arrow Video would would do a good deal. Uh, I don't know. I think I don't. Would, I can't say. No, I don't know. I, I think not. Not to go down the David Lynch Alien uh, yeah. and David Lynch Alien Three and Dune links. I don't want to speak for for Rob Zombie, but I think if you were, if you were a producer and you said to him, "We have two films here. We'd like you to edit them into one, or you to do a, a, a final cut and do a Halloween night." Where we'll give you two and a half hours, split them, but these two films, put them into one, and that can be your definitive vision. I think he would say no to that. I think he's done, which mm-hmm. is a shame Agreed. because I think you put these two films together. I think you've got a film that, it, and then I, I'm going to say this like no hyperbolic, no hyperbolic statement, but I think you've got a film that 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 puts the John Carmen to 1978 film in the shade. I think you've got really really talented filmmaker with a really interesting depiction of of of, of uh but the bogeyman um i wanted to say that for like three hours um i just don't um, think it'll, it, 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 the bogeyman i just don't think it will ever happen uh, by the way just to put it in perspective i'm just I've, I've just looked into the amazon website of the uh, scream factory deluxe edition box set and the uh, halloween and halloween 2 are part of it yeah yeah they've got the rights yep. yeah, said yeah. That, yeah so that's all that's that's all that's odd <laughs> Anyway, sing continue. I just look, I just think that there's 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 um there's hope for it yet, but I don't think he would ever want to touch this again, like like um, David Lynch would do, and I think it's too painful of an experience. Um, and I'm not comparing them, the two filmmakers, but I think if you it, he said on the Joe Rogan thing, like you put five years of work, hard blood, sweat, and 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 soul into a film, and people hate you for it. That I mean, I remember people were saying that he killed, he killed um. Halloween, he killed the franchise. Well, for like, almost a decade. But but but, it, but I mean, <laughs> these it's relative because you think they had Buster Rhymes in one. I put a cap in your ass, oh, like my, like he literally says that in the yeah. film. Like I know, like it, right? I know, I know. I, ju- I just think I think that, that that he was a massive scapegoat for issues that were present for fucking decades, and it's a shame. It really is, but I think um, if, if I can if I can get some footage, I think I'd, I wouldn't mind doing a, an edit of the first and second one together and just seeing how you could get on with it. I think you'd you'd uh, it'd be something definitely interesting to do there. Cool, um, fascinating. So, so uh, Max, do you want to follow up with your sort of uh, closing? 
arguments? Well, like I've said uh, at the beginning, I think Halloween 2 is fucking incredible. And uh, well, I have a pretty weird ranking of the of the Halloween franchise. Um, I would put <laughs> I would put David Gordon Green's Halloween as number one, which is excuse me. Yes, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I would put Rob Zombie's Halloween two as number two, and then right next to it would be Halloween three, Halloween Kills, and then at number five would be the John Carpenter Halloween movie. Medic. Medic. Need a medic. I know it's. I, I have a very chaotic relationship with the Halloween. Okay, I feel like William Friedkin with yeah, fucking, that is, that is these fucking edgelords everywhere. <laughs> Christ, really? Five, it's definitely five? unique. It's definitely. Well, unique. no, no, not number. F- the, the the fifth one isn't number five. No, no, no. The original. No, 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 at number five, you'd put the original. My yeah, goodness. I think Halloween three is fucking awesome and massively underrated. <laughs> but that's the that's a discussion for another time. Let's keep it to scene of the Halloween wind. Two. <clears throat> Was that? Yeah. Oh God, no! It's incredible. Oh. I love it. Oh, well, on that Anyways, note, Nick, that, that's 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 a truly uncut gem. But um, I will say, well, one I will say, Halloween Two is is incredible. I've already said what I had to say in terms of representation of trauma and how uh, visually it's one of the most beautiful films um, I've seen. It's it's insane, and performances are much better this time around, especially from um, what's her name, Scout Taylor Compton, who plays Laurie Strode. Mm-hmm. I liked her better in this one than in the, the previous film. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> Although, okay, well, let's not get into this. This is a, this is a con- too late contentious debate, especially with Carson in the room. We'd be, would, we would be here for another hour. Because <laughs> his takes on this are like, woof, oh my goodness. Anyway, Nick, closing statements. How about well, how do we feel about Halloween 2? <clears throat> uh, definitely an anchor gem. Um, I love this film for everything that we've talked about. Um, one thing we haven't really mentioned about slightly is just the pain in this film. Not, not just about the trauma, just pain. You talked about it earlier, Jakub, about like the Richard Brake scene where it's just in the stuck in the ambulance and it's just lingering on his face. We see all of the cuts and the wounds from the previous movie on the characters' bodies and faces. Um, it's very visceral in a way that very few horror films ever address. Even the new ones by David Gordon Green, you don't really feel the wounds and the pain from the previous movie in Halloween Kills. And in this one, you sure do. You feel every hit. Um, and the Annie scene is just incredible. Uh, it's going to make an appearance later on, just her death. But there's a lot of more... It's just more poignant. It's just more touching overall, more emotional. Um, and just handles everything with much more care. So, yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's one of my favorite slasher films, honestly. There you go. Um I'll just in lieu of my closing statements, I'll probably just say a few things. I kind of I really like this film, and I never expected I would. And this is a this is one of the sort of more massive surprises of actually doing this show because I I, like I rarely get to see something for the first time for this because it's just I don't know. Like part of the idea is curating a list of films to to watch and then to talk about and then how do you curate if you don't if you don't know them already. <clears throat> so it's uh, so it's part of this, but I'm, I'm super happy with that, that we've, we've done this because it's this should be a, a genuinely a part of a conversation when people say on Twitter like once once every three weeks it's like what's the sequel that's better than the original like that's what's this is it that's like you don't you don't you don't throw in Godfather Part Two or, or, just or, or, for a, 
This is it. And, and you've only seen the theatrical version of this as well. Yeah, I haven't seen the direct. I'm not even sure how I'm going to see the director's cut if I ever well, want to, because it's not released in here. So I would have to resort to sort of like clandestine routes. I don't know. <clears throat> well, accessibility, if it's not there, unfortunately, we will find well, a way. Well, life finds a way. <laughs> uh, mm. No, but what I wanted to say is just I like how... Like, it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite films of all time, and this is this, and I, by virtue of, of of this sort of energy, I kind of like how Rob Zombie kind of just gets into this. And then we talked about classic clapper cast about about like James Wan, and I always had this sort of feeling that in, when he was in his early heyday, he was trying to kind of get this sort of energy that Rob Zombie just has organically, but he would but he would never kind of use it properly. And I think this is. This is him kind of doing Toby Hooper in a very effective way. And like the 16 millimeter aesthetic really helps a lot. And I love how like you guys, I think Jack, you mentioned that this is like washed out. And was like, that's that it feels sun bleached. It feels like something that kind of just found in a in a in an attic somewhere. It feels uh, drained, doesn't it? It feels appropriately emotive. It it does. It it feels it feels like the, I love the high contrast. I don't even mind the sort of <clears throat> quote unquote Lynchian bullshit. Um, and because it's it, it doesn't detract, and I, I love how how they have these dissolves um, of like like there will be a static shot, and there will be a dissolve of Michael just walking in the background. Now he's kind of slightly closer, and then closer, kind of gives this sort of oneric dream, like a sort of aesthetic. Without, and these are probably the scenes that probably the, the you know like armchair critics of film Twitter would not not even think, oh, this is the lynching bit. No, this is the dreamlike stuff. Like the, the white horse is just a distraction. Anyway. <laughs> But I really like this film. I'm super happy I've watched it. And and uh, we talked about the rape scene in the first first film being like completely out of place. There's a there's a horribly gr- gratuitous sex scene in this film that that people people completely forget about. Like we have this. Club? Yeah, this well. is, they bang a woman on a on a desk, right? <laughs> and it's just what the fuck's happening? And then she gets murdered like, when she's completely naked. It's just the most gratuitous. <laughs> way well, he, of, of the, the, taking the her out well, that's oh. how Ram Zombie works yes but see we never even touched it we did not whereas <laughs> the rape scene in the first one that's the whole the bulk of conversation was just how it was inappropriate but this for some reason it feels appropriate because it's just in the same melody and then yeah so I am really I'm, I'm a fan of this film I'm super happy that, that we've done this so it's this is yeah Again, like I do this sometimes. This is the definition of what we do here: just picking up films that people shit on and then see genius of in them. And this is one of them. So um, I'm super happy we're we're doing this. And I'm and I, at this point, I'm like, I would have wanted to see wanted to see Carson's face because he's gone, he's gone for now. I really want to do a Patreon retrospective of Rom Zombie's work. I would do. I would do. Like I want to, I want to go through the House of a, of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects. Forget about the Halloween films because we've done them here. Done here. Do the thirty-one. Do the House of Sa- uh, Lords of Salem. And is there another one that I'm missing? Free from Hell. Free, Free from, from hell. hell. Yes. So do- no, and the Super Beast as well. Oh yeah. So yeah, we could, we could do a nice retrospective. I, I, I'm game for this. I'm, the animated I'm movie. I'm actually I'm actually aiming to watch the remaining. I only have three left <laughs> from him. I have House of a Thousand Corpses, Free from Hell. And the animated one left to watch because um three from hell devil's rejects and then house of a thousand corpses are kind of a loose trilogy almost right because yes. they're kind of connected no, they're 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 listening right. devil's rejects yeah <laughs> so it was um, my first one back in 2013 Jesus. but anyway so i'm i'm i, I kind of 
Rob Zombie is an acquired taste. He's kind of like the Wes Anderson of horror, as I like to as I like to say. I don't know he's, about that. No, in terms of like, in terms of what he does, in terms, he has a style that he does not deviate from. And if you hire him to do a job, this is this is what you're getting. Like, there's not there's no middle ground. Like, there's no yeah, compromise. Okay, this is yeah, yeah. Halloween okay, okay, that, is like okay. Grand Budapest Hotel, where, where he's is at his most idiosyncratic, right? <laughs> but you know, so, so you know, like you, you walk into a Rob Zombie film, you're walking, you're walking into an experience that's a Rob Zombie esque. Uh, the same way that if you, if I, when I go to French Dispatch, I'm not going to go and say I had this. I expected a Judd Apatow comedy, right? It's, <laughs> it's not very good either. So, so I'm told. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I'm I'm a fan of this. So with that, how about we do our top three? Max, do you want to lead the way? Yeah, sure. Um, top three. Mm-hmm. I would say number three um, is the very funny sequence with uh, Chris Hardwick and uh, um, Weird Al Yankovic. It's uh, <laughs> very funny. And uh, it's probably the only part of the Dr. Loomis arc that I legitimately enjoy. But more on that maybe later. Uh, number two would probably be, and uh, well, uh, yes, it would be Daniel Harris as uh, Annie. Um, I this was the moment I don't know why but it was it was the moment where I realized that oh shit she played Jamie in Halloween four and five I didn't even realize it when I watched um, the 2007 Halloween movie she's the only and, person apart from Jamie Lee Curtis to uh, yeah. reappear so many times I said uh, that, yeah, yeah. And, and and she's quite good in, in this very and good. pleasant story and apart Donald Pleasant yeah <laughs> Donald Pleasant um, is five I think she's four, isn't she? Daniel Harris. Yes. And then Jamie Lee is what, six, seven, six eight now? <laughs> seven with the next one. Yeah. <laughs> and then number one would be the um, hospital scene. The whole thing is just why I loved this movie. It was exactly that. I, was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I Because I, 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 I really didn't like the, the first movie so much. So I didn't think, oh, this one would impress me. But then when that scene came on, it just everything just clicked. And it was phenomenal. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Nick, how about you go next before you fall asleep? <laughs> <laughs> well, number three is the the Halloween party. I like a good themed party, and this one was 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 good. It's 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 a nice change of pace. Did you like the it, joke the guy says? <laughs> yes. Well, to to be honest, like I do like that this film. It's it's a change for like it's bringing Rob Zombie into a new era because he's also having new collaborators that will come back over and over again like Richard Brake that we mentioned, but also the guy here whose name is, I always forget. Well, Jeff Daniel, Daniel Phillips. No, 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 Jeff Daniel Phillips. This I is first thought time. you said Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> no, Jeff, 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 uh, who plays two characters in the film. He's like a, the, the, a guy in the strip club and he plays the, the head guy at the party, whatever. Anyway, I like that scene. There's a guy who brings the chick into the shagging wagon. That's, that's very funny because he clearly hasn't used that for shagging very awkward um it's a good scene i like it second one uh we mentioned it earlier it's the dinner scene with brad Dourif, daniel harris and uh, laurie it's just it's it's tender it's nice and not only that but it's cutting back and forth to michael having his own dinner he's just taking the deer or whatever and eating in it raw it's a nice juxtaposition between the two um, and lastly, like Maxence mentioned, it's the it's the death of Annie, 
um, specifically the use of archival footage of, of Daniel Harris, that's just an emotional gut punch that in many other movies would have felt cheap, would have felt sappy. And in this one, it, it just works. Same as the ending of uh, the first Halloween, just an inspired choice. Interesting. Jack, your top three, come on. Um, number three is uh, the relationship between Laurie Strode and, and Anna, um, specifically Scout, Taylor, Compton and, uh, and uh, Daniel Harris. I think it's really, really feisty. It's emotional. It's tender. Um, really good uh, depiction of it. Um, this number two is, I think, how the incorporate uh, Michael Myers as well is really interesting. He's a, he's a third party. He's a background. He's an unstoppable force and he's going to hit um, an object and we're going to see the, the collision. The fact that the mask is deteriorating uh, it's really interesting as well how it's dirty. It's just like, a, you know, he says die. It's just an interesting um, appropriation of him. He doesn't um, do it in his theatrical, though. Yeah, which is interesting. I, again, I think the director's got superior. I'm going to go for something really... Um, I'm, I'm annoyed you brought it up already. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly off off kilter, but um, I really, really like the strip, strip club sequence. It's my favourite part of the film because it takes... It, it pauses. It takes... It was completely out of the film. It brings us back to where it has, like, obviously has context because it's where Michael's mother used to work as well, which is so interesting. And the fact that it takes everything out, it puts Michael in, in what feels like a very different um, environment. Um, and he, he comes into it after we get a bit of character, just a bit of not, a bit of like strange dialogue. It felt weirdly Tarantino esque where we, 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 we see an environment and then we have you a, know what a, it feels like. Come in. From dusk to dawn. Yeah, as well. Mm. I, think it's a, I think it's the same bar in Kill Bill as well. I, Maybe. I feel I could be wrong because I think the both both filmed in Georgia. Um, it looks very could, similar. You're right. Yeah, I could, I could, I could be wrong though. Um, Sid Haig reference there as well because he's behind the bar in uh, Kill Bill Volume Two and he's in the first one. Um, but I think it's like it, it just takes Michael out of a very different um, um, place, and you know he has the mask, and that's when you find it. You get you know the, the, the rip on it as well. And, um, they they just like the gore, like it's a physical thing as well, where he snaps his arm and he's he's screaming. It does go overkill with the actual violence itself. Like the act just feels like, oh okay. But it's really well devised. The colour is there. Again, it's, <laughs> but it's how he finds few... the axe and he's like fucking yes. <laughs> yeah, the there's, there's very, yeah, there's very few sequences in the film where colour pops and the sound mm-hmm. like uh, that that elevates it, but the whole sequence just felt like a really interesting um di- diversion. So that that would be my, my top three, definitely. Cool. I've got a bunch of things, so I'm gonna I'm gonna list them because like when I like something, that there's gonna be like a lot on 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 the top three, so there's gonna be more than three. Um, I really like how Weird Al buds in and cuts off Loomis when he asks the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the whole sequence. It's just like there's the playfulness that's kind of lacking in the first one. Like when how Lo- also part of the same scene when then cuts hard cut to Loomis exiting and he's like fuming he's like this is the most I've been humiliated and he's just like shouts at this woman and then the, there's the receptionist and he, and he goes like completely just like bye thank you <laughs> it's just ridiculous I, I really like that Um, I really love how the end the film ends with the sort of idea that you don't know what's real and what's it, what isn't like it's just chaotic and this is Rob Zombie being Rob Zombie but this is when everything's blaring everything's shouting at you but it kind of works because it's supposed to unsettle you in that way <clears throat> the hospital chase, of course, like the Octavia Spencer sequence in there is just. Oh, I mean, the whole the whole thing, the whole twenty five minutes of the film is just an, a ride. I mean, holy shit, this is this is just something. But what's something that you, what's something that we didn't retouch really on? 
is I wanted to bring this. So I'm gonna I'm I'm leaving it to last. I mean, well, might as well mention one more thing. But the film opens with um, I think it opens with it a little, or maybe it doesn't open with it. It's it's early on when you see Doctor Loomis with his arms crossed when he's delivering this lecture, and then in the back you have this sort of Michael's Michael in a mm-hmm. mask on the cover. It's very much like 1984 sort of situation. Like I really like this. It's clearly sort of like a stylized shot. I was like, I want to, I want, I want to do something in here. I, I like this. But what one thing I wanted the whole film. All throughout the film, you cannot hear the theme. Yes. I knew you were going to bring this up. I thought you're I'd... right. There's no music until the very end, and even with that, I mean, you hear the music, the um, the sort of intro to it, so you don't hear the sort of the me until the credits roll. And when they roll, this is where he fucked with the with the theme because as Carpenter composed it, it's just one, it's just two notes, right? But uh, he harmonizes this. Harmonizes this with another note that's in dissonance, so it just sounds horrible. But it's just like a fuck you to the theme, as in like, yeah, I'm gonna make it sound horrible because it's it's harmonized with another note that's just half step above, which is just horrible to listen to. Um, but but it kind of gives this sort of this ominous sort of feel, like you're just almost unsettled by by virtue of just having to listen to it. It's just amazing to me. On that note, Jakob, very, very quickly, we, we talk about this film being far ahead of its time. Don't you think that's an attribute of modern cinema as well, where, you know, we're watching like the Snake Eyes film and he gets his mask at the end or, you know, Kissing Royale, like the name's Bond, <laughs> James Bond at the end. Do you think that's like yeah. a, a, a normality now as well, where he was sort of not, not the first of his kind to do it, but he restrained his audience in what they expected and then he delivers right at the end. Not, I wouldn't say, I think fuck you's too harsh. I think it's like this is my film. Remember, yes, I, I think this is like more, an ownership uh, thing. Yeah, you know? I think this is like I'm I'm homaging the original, but I'm doing this my way. And so he said he said on Rocket Record the only reason why it's like that is because he couldn't fit in the film. I don't. I don't. Well, really if you listen to how he how he comments on the scenes he's deleted, it's kind of like how could you not fit it in? Like the film was already two hours long, hmm. and he's like, ah, oh, it didn't flow. Like he he cuts like. He's like Terence Malick that he will just like hire an actor, give gives them a scene, and they'll just go into it. And he's just like, "No, you're not in my film anymore. I'm sorry." Mm. <laughs> so, so it's a bit weird Bless that him. way. <laughs> Bless him. But yeah, I, I don't know. I like this. I like the fact that the theme comes in the end, just to remind you that after all, yes, I'm still aware of what I'm doing. This is a Halloween film, but it's my Halloween film. This is Rob Zombie's Halloween. This is like when you see how the original Halloween, the stroke of genius that Carpenter had when he insisted on having John Carpenter's up top, this deserved to have John, well, Rob Zombie's Halloween too. This, mm. this is what we should have had. Well, that, that's that's my, that's why I want <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween. I want them two together. I want that, I want edited in one film. I think that would be a definitive version. Yeah, I mean, it could have worked. I think in some, but I think now it's too late. This this ship has sailed. Oh god, yeah. I think I think he's <laughs> fucked off too many people. To be fair, in this, in this franchise. Uh, yeah. So how about we go through our bottom threes and peace out, uh, Max? Bottom threes. Oh yeah. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, bottom threes. Um, I really hated the party scene in this. I I don't know. I it probably was one of the worst parts of the movie for me. That I I it didn't really click. Um, as opposed to, I mean, I, I know it's kind of like Laurie Strode um, seems to go um, all out. She kind of doesn't care about life anymore. She, start, she, she, she starts to get drunk and shit, but it's not, you know, doesn't feel like proper character development or um, 
how she's going to deal with her trauma when she knows that Michael Myers is kind of lurking at the back of the back of her mind. So it kind of it kind of felt a little jarring to me. Number two would be um, unfortunately I didn't really care about Brad Dorf as Sheriff Brackett this time around. He was pretty good in the first uh, oh, movie. Medic, but, uh, medic. But um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But in this one, I don't know. I I like Brad Dourif in small doses, I guess. But he was great as uh, Peter DeVries in uh, David Lynch's Dune. I watched that movie recently, so whatever. Um, and uh, number one, well, it's uh, the whole arc with Doctor Loomis uh, with Malcolm McDowell. I just every time they cut to Doctor Loomis, I became completely disengaged in the film, except for the end and the scene with uh, with Weird Al. I just it. It felt like it belonged in another film. Um, and it feels like a complete tone shift with what, what, what Zombie presented uh, Loomis as in the first movie, right? He was more in line with Donald Pleasance, uh, Malcolm McDowell, and it feels way too fucking weird for Loomis to start capitalizing on Michael Myers and becoming this great big polemist who's, uh, well, not only capitalizing on Myers, but on the murders of the... Uh, teenage girls in Haddonfield in the first film. There's this, this distraught dad that visits him, almost kills him and uh, during the book signing sequence. And it feels it feels completely odd and, and, and tonally out of place with, with everything that the movie is aesthetically setting up. Um, yeah, that's it. Strong words. Yeah. Uh, just, I'm not going to get into this. <laughs> Some things, and it, never mind. I mean, I will just say, like, on Brad Dourif, I really like him, but I would say that every time he screams, all I hear is Chucky. So I'll just, well, say no, of course, of course, <laughs> yes. So it's just that, but like, uh, Nick, Brad Dourif is one of the best improvements compared to the original, one of very few improvements compared to the original hmm. Halloween for me, but anyway, um, number three. It, like, it was actually hard to choose those three, so it's just they're just pet peeves in a small way. Uh, but it, it's funny when Loomis arrives outside of the siege, let's say, police raid at the end, and he just kind of like runs out of focus in the background to, to the shack. <laughs> it's just a funny shot. Um, I didn't really like Rob Zombie dialogue at all of that, but the Richard Brake scene, the dialogue in the opening, all those jokes, that was rough. That's the, What's the, the difference the, between jam and jello. <laughs> that's yes, yes. Oh, Jesus. Also, that, that joke made, made an appearance on How I Met Your Mother, apparently. Oh, wow. Jeez. Those references. Um, and the last one may be controversial, but I didn't really, I still think Scout Taylor Compton wasn't that great in this one. Um, I think the dialogue she has to work with is better than the first one, but there's still something missing from her. Um, I don't really know what. But that's it. Uh, Jack, did you do your bottom threes? Now it's your turn now. Yeah, um, weird enough, this this was very difficult to do um, compared to the uh, to the other one. Um, I think uh, in in no in no certain order I can do three, but I, they're not going to descend or ascend. I think one of them is definitely the depiction of Daniel Harris again. I I don't know if it's a conscious choice by the actress or zombie, but to reutilize like the same motif of her. Uh, top half naked to be to, to be depicted like that like it is in the in the first film feels repetitive um second of all um i think so often enough i think it's this film's very dark in terms of actual lighting i think there should be some sort of 
there sort of needs to be a bit more sort of emphasis on Michael to like literally see him. Um, the se- sequence where um, uh, he, he attacks the three people in, 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 in the in the field is one specific use of lighting where it's effective, but you can never like literally see anything. Reminds me of Alien vs Predator Requiem um, at times um, in, in terms of lighting. Um, and the third one, and it's not necessarily like a massive detriment to the film, but as discussed, I think setting the film uh, quite anticlimactic at uh, this random shed, this farmland just feels like out of nowhere. I think it would feel more personal at the, at the actual Myers house if it's still in Haddonfield. Um, and I think that would be another one where you don't really get to feel a sense of Haddonfield anymore. You felt you felt sub- suburbia in the first one. You don't feel that here. You don't feel a setting. It feels like a, a, a again one long dream sequence where nothing feels reality. Which is more conscious to what you said, Jacob. Where I think it's it's interesting that nothing feels definitive in reality here. That could all be up in uh, in terms. But there was my light detriments. I think throughout throughout, I think it's a really really good film. Um. By by the way, just your your comments just reminded me. Did you guys figure out? Okay. Are we supposed to know what whether this is a period piece or not? Oh, I read I read that because they, they, there was a theory about the first film. They didn't if it was in the nineteen seventies because the film I think starts in the seventies and then kind of progresses fifteen years later, which just puts in like the fucking nineties, right? And does it feel like it's in the nineties or, like or should we not? I care? I wouldn't think so because <clears throat> it's not. It's like the the drive cars. They're like oh, the, the, there's no modern cars around, for instance, well, right? Yeah. I don't think they thought much about it. Yeah, yeah, same here. But anyway. So, okay, bottom three. Okay, I've got a few pet peeves. I mean, two, well, one pet peeve and one kind of not pet peeve and one something that really bothers me. So pet peeve first. Michael grunts when he stabs. Just, just why? Why are you doing this to me? Like, it's just, like, in the first one, he was silent. He would just, just, you know, just, oh, here's the knife going through your eye. Great. Uh, But he just goes like, like he's trying to not to shoot himself. It's just me. Um, at the party, <laughs> uh, that friend who says she's dressed as a as a chick who dress who dre- no, she's a chick who's, who's dressed like a dude who's dressed as a chick, and then they <laughs> it's just like that's just why are we doing this? Like, well, I can I can see how this is this is going to be contentious these days, but um. What I will say then, how how then also go the scene goes on and on for for a little while, and then and then they 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 go into the shag wagon or whatever the shagging van, and then the, the guy shagging said, wagon. And this is the pinnacle of this. That just like I'm like when she's he says, oh, I need to go and take a piss, and then, of course he's gonna go and take a piss, <laughs> and then and then she says, do it here. I I don't mind some golden shower. I'm like fucking Jesus. A three moments, a few best. This is Rob Zombie for you, right? <laughs> what you get when you're watching a Rob Zombie film she was like oh yeah do it in a van like piss piss all over me like this yeah oh no gross and then it's his van so you know and then it just transitions into her the friends sequence especially when Laurie finds out from a book which is a great sort of character wrinkle like she finds out from a book that she's related to Michael Myers she comes in distraught and then she confesses to her friends how how she's just she has this demon on her shoulder and then they just the conversation she has with her supposedly great friends is basically like a conversation that three copies of rob zombie would have with one another 
<laughs> it just makes no sense to me. Like this is not how people speak. It's just who died. Like this, your friend cries. Like she clearly, like what, what, what were you like in another dimension? Like you clearly heard that she said she said something. She sat down on the sofa while you were there, and, and she was she was confessing, and you just butt it in, and then she's like, "Oh, I'm dressed as a chick," and they do this like with her with their tongue. Just fucking calm down. And this is just yeah, bottom three material for me. <sighs> We've done it, boys. <laughs> So <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween is available on to stream on AMC Plus in the US, I think, and on in Canada on Amazon Prime, but not Amazon in Prime. the UK. Is it not Prime? Or is it the second Canada is it it is available? Both both movies are available on Amazon. Yeah, so it's on Same Amazon. Here. Amazon. Yeah, so it's so it's on Prime and certain markets. In the UK, you kind of have to uh, yeah, we have to pay up uh, on top of your subscriptions. Um I'm just buy the DVD of the uncut edition for a five or a second hand from like I did. Um, ridiculous criminal i know right um (laughs) anyway so it can be rented or purchased from the usual vendors you can it's it's kind of sort of available physically but in some regions and maybe out of print so it's like i'm not sure like how big like you might it's it's part of the big halloween boxes so if you can get get your hands on this and you pay like 400 dollars for it go for it go nuts same deal with halloween 2 amc plus in the us no no love in the uk prime in the uh in canada and other markets uh, and then director's cut. If you're if you're fortunate to live in region one, is available on Blu-ray and then nowhere else, I suppose. So this is it. That's us for this episode of the Uncut Gems podcast. Where can we find you all on social media, and where can we find your stuff? How about Max? You start with your shizzle. How about you go first? Well, you can follow me on uh, Twitter if you want at Max from Quebec. You can also find me on Letterbox. My name, and uh, that's it, I guess. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. Uh, super nice having you over. Great. Uh, Jack, do you want to go next? Yeah, you can find me on the, uh, with the username Jack Luke Sharp um, on Letterbox and Twitter, uh, hashtagging evil died tonight. <coughs> evil that's with a Y, as in. <laughs> Indeed. Died it up. <laughs> uh, Nick? <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NickyBar97 and on Instagram. And also Letterbox at Nicola Grasso. You can also watch my videos and short films on YouTube and Vimeo at Enjoy the Movies. And yeah, you can read my stuff on Book for Thought as well. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can find me on Talk About Film. You can also read my stuff on Clapper and FashionFilm.com. You can read all our stuff on Clapper as well. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Uncut Gems Pod. So make sure to follow, like, read, read our stuff. Also, uh, rate and review us on Apple because it helps us get to get to other people. Do it, and that all goes from for all you guys as well. <clears throat> uh, I want I don't want to see anything less than five stars. <clears throat> so because you know because uh, we're nice in here. Anyway, uh, you can send us an email at contribspot at gmail.com so you can so- sound off about you know Rob Zombie in general or like the Halloween films we covered. That's how you do it. <laughs> but, well. Um, you can you can also support the show coffee.com slash uncutgemspod buy us a coffee help help to keep the lights on or you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash clapperltd where we also do other podcasts and I think as this thing will drop uh, quite a short time later I think you'll, you'll see a Patreon sort of episode uh, that we did uh, I think a special episode of um, Death by Adaptation where we talked about Stephen King. So to tune in to hear us talk about Stephen King and some of his adaptations as well. So that, that that's a great conversation we had. 
um, and it's only two bucks a month, and then you'll get access to a quite a lot of crap from us. So uh, tune in and do that. Um, so be sure to actually stay with us next week as we'll be uh, changing gears quite a whole lot as well because we'll be talking about Michael Mann's Black Hat. So look out for that as well. So for now, I hope you have a fabulous day and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.